Decoding the Gurus, the podcast where a psychologist, Matthew Brown, and a cognitive anthropologist, Christopher Kavanagh, I'm from Australia. He's from Northern Ireland a long time ago. We, uh, let me start again. <laughs> what? No, that was good. I, you called was, me a cognitive anthropologist. That was very, that's I was happy right. with that. That's right, but there's a lot of little bits I have to mention. I've got to get in the right order, and if I mix it up, it gets confusing. You think all the people will, like, they'll get all angry and just turn off the podcast now? They'll be yes, like, Yes, they expect me to get it right. They have expectations about the spiel. They like the spiel. They get upset when it changes. That was 90% of the spiel. What was the missing bit? I think all of the jigsaw pieces were there, but they didn't quite connect together in the way they were meant to. That's okay. That's okay. Everyone knows. You know. Everyone you know what's knows going who we on. are. You know who they, he is. You know who I and am. And I'm, I'm not that long out of Northern Ireland, Matt. Let's just be clear. It's not that long ago. It's not really? that long ago. Okay. Well, so, you're still connected to your roots, you know? That's you're right. Still... I'm still Chris from the block. <laughs> <laughs> you're not like me. It's like generations ago. So, I've like been officially, you know, demembered. I'm no longer a part of the club, the, the Irish club. I I'm still loaded. Oh though, I will say I got I got chipped because of the Dylan Moran thing. I read a thread in Reddit yeah, about that. Yeah. I read it. The Irish, they're revolting as yeah. they tend to do because they're saying I'm wrong. That yeah. in Ireland we call them Dylan Moran. Um yeah. Moran. Uh, but do we? <laughs> well, actually There's yeah. a question because I, I'm not, I don't know, but maybe not, I, like, I'm not doubting the Southerners, which Dylan Moran, M- Moran, <laughs> is, <laughs> is one of about his pronunciation of his name. But is that what we call him in Northern Ireland? That's the question. Well, you know what? I'm actually going to check this with my dad because I'd completely forgotten this, but I actually have Morans, Morans in my family tree, right? There are, there are relatives up there in the family tree that I remember my grandparents and parents and uncles or whatever referring to. And I just, like it clicked when I read that in the Reddit thing. I remember them referring to them as morons. Morons. Not morons. <laughs> like, you, you, like, have family, you have a family it's history like, of morons. <laughs> it's like I've overthought it now, but it's pronounced like Aaron, like Moran, Moran. And Moran. Yeah, and oh, I did No, that sounds I, right. I, yeah, and I never made the connection. It's like there's exist these incidents existed in different parts of my brain. And so I'm gonna I'm gonna do an experiment, right? I'm not gonna tell my dad anything. I'm just gonna ask him. Oh, that's a good idea. And, yeah, and I'll check I'll check I'll check this, Chris. I'll I'll check and it. Look, I'm not saying that being from Belfast that I can just use that to say my dialect is a weird part of Belfast. That's that's how we pronounce it. I'm not saying I would strategically use that to deflect the criticism, but you know, maybe maybe some people in Belfast pronounce it a different way. It's possible. Who knows? Yeah. Come well, on. Who knows? Look, only look. people from Belfast would know that. But like, I'm I'm pretty sure I've heard Moran Morin. I've heard Morin. Now that sounds right. Yeah. I don't know. It's it funny, like, say. yeah, it does, like, you've heard it too. Like, I've heard it, and I never really connected it with the spelling. Like, it's just something I, I heard, no. yeah. Anyway, look, there's no doubt, you Northerners do have different accents from the Southerners. That's right. There I've, is no doubt. I've heard <laughs> Liam Neeson. I've, I've heard <laughs> Liam Neeson before. I know what Liam Neeson sounds like. I've watched, like, The Wind That Shakes the Barley and other 
Bloody That's another Irish. one. I, I got confused that Liam Neeson was not. I thought it was Southern Irish. <laughs> so I can't trust. I can't trust me about anything. Yeah. So well, anyway, that was one piece of feedback. Dunking on you or me or both of us, it's unclear. The Irish, maybe, as a, a ethnic group, but yeah. there was another piece of feedback from our recently very well received Robin D'Angelo episode, Matt, and. It's directed mainly to you, so I thought it's important that we cover it. And there were two of them, actually, one through our Patreon and one by email. And I suspect that there may be a confounding professional uh, aspect to these, but let, let me read out one to you, what they want to say. One point in the parallels you drew between D'Angelo's understanding of systemic racism and psychoanalysis. You fail to recognize the critical distinction. While there are central psychoanalytic developmental narratives that are considered common to everyone, even if they differ across various schools, someone working from that point of view would make no claims about the ubiquity of disorders in that development because they are not ubiquitous. An analyst does not preach about the inherent moral feelings of development to every poor soul who walks into their office. Rather, he or she aims to help particular people if problematic dynamics happen to be relevant to the trouble they're describing. As yeah. I understand it, D'Angelo insists that every white person suffers from racism just by existing. There is no possibility that the white person could naturally develop as anything other than a racist because they're born into an inherently bad system in which the problem coincides with living. In contrast, the psychoanalytic point of view maintains that normal development leads to normal people. The Oedipal conflict, for instance, is automatically resolved by most people in early childhood. That's the default. Only when there is evidence of some disruption in the form of symptoms is there a hypothesis that development somehow went awry. Psychoanalytic theory does not assert, to paraphrase Robin D'Angelo, that nothing exempts me from the forces of an Oedipal conflict <laughs> in adulthood because normal development is that exemption. So mm. Matt said it best mid-pod, white fragility is pseudo psychoanalytic mm. and, and they, they mm. acknowledge that maybe at some time in analytic history it, there would have been stronger parallels but not yeah. today Matt not today yeah. and Fair that's enough. from Matthew Zimmerman I think a very well argued case um, yeah. so would it, do you agree yes 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 if you make me force me to be fair and everything like that of course of course i know those things i know those things i don't like psychoanalysis i don't like psychoanalytic theory mainly just because i don't think it's a parsimonious explanation for things I, th I think it's a bit of a historical thing it can be a useful frame for therapy i bet there's a lot of useful frames for therapy you know i got the same problem with unionism it's just a bit too humanities kind of go with your feelings vibe. I, I will say that I think that the, you know, the id, the superego, the ego, the, you know, those sorts of general ideas, like it's an important part of psychological history. And I think some of the insights there are good. And I just think it's been superseded by, you know, some other less literary, more sciencey psychology. So that's my prejudice, right? I'm just putting my cards on the table. But I do want to acknowledge the key point that he's making, which is that psycho analysts don't assume that every single person mm. that walks through the door has an Oedipus complex. But I was like, my very restrictive analogy was just that, you know, this has been a problem that's been pointed out with psychoanalytic theory as a theory, not as a therapeutic technique, 
but as a scientific theory, it, which is that you're seeking to test whether or not the theory is valid, then you do some sort of experiment, you, do, you collect some sort of evidence and you see whether or not the thing is supported. And you know, a problem that has been identified, not just by, by myself, but by others, is that if you get evidence for it, then the theory is confirmed. If you see like a, a distinct lack of evidence for it, then there's the potential to say, oh, well, that's because it's being suppressed, et cetera. So that was the only analogy I was drawing. I realized I was being a little bit unfair and I have a prejudice so against psychoanalysis. I'm sorry. So what's happened there is that your apology has boomeranged around into a damning critique <laughs> empirical basis for psychoanalytic <laughs> approaches and I'm I'm quite impressed with that but it's a look Matt cannot we can't stop him from dunking on psychoanalysis it's it's 20% of his personality um, so I've although you argued cogently uh, yeah. Matthew Zimmerman and look Look, look, M Matthew, think of it this way. You know how in psychoanalytic theory, people have like, you know, some people, not everybody, but some people have sort of psychological, psychic energy trapped at various developmental stages. That's like me, but with psychoanalysis. I've got some psychic energy trapped in antagonism towards psychoanalysis. And, you know, until I resolve these issues, the dunks are going to keep coming. That's I'm right. Sorry. That's right. And, and, and our... Patreon commenter, who I will not mention in case they, they want to remain anonymous because I'm, I'm always bad at remembering that. I'll end up cast myself as a defender of <laughs> analysis, which is which is not my role, but I, I have my own criticisms of that. But, you know, I will say that I, I'm a little bit on board with the more that I look at the gurus with the unresolved issues with childhood and development playing a part in adults' lives. At least I think the gurus could be, you know, well served by some sessions with a psychoanalyst. So um yeah, yeah. that's that's there, there's something to it, Matt. There's something there. They no, all have these narratives. No, I think there is. I mean, you know, like I said, I've got a prejudice against it because I, I'm very much on the button down scientific kind of thing. But that's that's not to say there isn't utility in metaphor and in that more expansive, extravagant, literary, elusive, metaphorical way of looking at things. And yeah, you know, I think people get inspired by different things and we all need frameworks to, to navigate stuff. We have a, look, we're having a little opening segment now about psychoanalysis and our encounters with it. And I, I will mention, Matt, that even in the anthropological realm, some people apply, attempt to apply psychoanalytic approaches to like historical material and that mm. kind of thing. I'm very dubious. Yeah. Uh, Ganav OBS Ekere did it with Captain Cook and I'm, I'm not sure I buy all of his analysis of what was going on there. And the same way, like our, our friend Jordan Peterson adopts a Jungian framework, not, not exactly Freudian, but we've all seen the issues that can come from that. So. Yep. You know, that's all we're just saying. We're just saying. Look, <laughs> that's it. I think a good compromise middle of the road resolution here is to say that, look, sometimes it, it might be abused. It might be abused. It might be. Take, yeah, it, might it is. Be. <laughs> it might be. It is. It could be. <laughs> you know. Well, it's, uh, or 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 this is just evidence of our Al repressive, our fragility, regarding yeah. Well, I was gratified to see that relatively few people did accuse us of what 
My fragility, fragility in yeah. our critiques of D'Angelo. I was gratified, though, to see that at least some people did say that. I'm um, glad too. Was, I would yeah. have been disappointed if someone <laughs> yeah. hadn't said it was like a podcast just demonstrating my fragility. Like it's such a low hanging pinata. Somebody should have just smacked <laughs> it open and they uh, they did. So I was gratified to see that as well. Yeah. yeah. Um, but we got some good feedback from someone we both like on Twitter, Furious and Furiouser is how I remember them from Twitter. And now they're currently called Parody, Elon Musk Parody account, which is pretty much how powerful. Yeah, very topical and all power to them for that. But they made some great comments about something that we might have missed or glided over a little bit, which was that um, they they noticed that D'Angelo did seem to be making a few different points that sounded an awful lot like deepities. And we've talked about deepities before, but we didn't really talk about it a lot in relation to D'Angelo. But couple of quotes she's made there, which is that, for example, whiteness has meaning, even if you don't think it does. Mm. I don't need to understand racism for it to be valid. Mm. Nothing exempts you from the forces of racism. I mean, these are kind of, are they true? Are they not? It's kind of hard to say, but it does sound a little bit like Deepak Chopra. And I thought that Furious and Furious made a pretty good point there about the DPDs because I, I sort of, I was a bit distracted by the other stuff and I don't think I really thought about how they were a bit Deepak Chopra-esque. I think that's the username rather than their actual name. I'm not sure, but mm, that's, <laughs> so I just, they're an internet figure, entity. an account. They're an entity. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, what is Furious and Furiouser? What are they, Matt? <laughs> Who are they? I assume they're a collective. There are a number of ferrets. They're a construct. A, a construct. Um, <laughs> yeah. Ferrets in a suit. That's what I assume. That's right. Yes, and, and there was also a good thread done by a friend of the podcast and host of Conspirituality, Matthew Remsky, riffing on the episode and, and talking about the you know dynamics relating to his work and experience, you know, with cultish dynamics. And it was, I thought it was really good as well. So maybe we'll stick in the links to both of the threads so people can check it out before Twitter goes down in flames. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I think overall, just the general vibe I get from people's responses to it. And we weren't very concerned about this, about releasing this one. We weren't concerned about blowback or anything because we thought, well, you know, we, we have something of a reputation for being critical. Yes. But I think even handedly critical against bullshit wherever we feel that we see it. And I if we like do say so ourselves. If yes. we do say so ourselves, <laughs> yeah. you know, right or wrong. But I don't think we're perceived as political agitators, um, which is. Accurate in my in my you're, view. You're so wrong, Matt. Uh, like you just don't okay. pay enough attention on Reddit to the like <laughs> IDW folk. Some people really think we're just, uh, but uh, no, actually they're wrong because they, you know, if you had asked them to predict, would we do a critical episode on D'Angelo? They would have been like, no, because no, they, they can't do that. They're on board yeah. with that. They're trying to yeah. promote it, the, the white fragility. So so yeah, but, so suck it, suck it, IDW. Yes. Yeah. That, well, that, that it, it did occur. It did occur to me though, Chris. Like, I wonder what would be the. I mean, you know, we we make fun of the W right of center Chuckle people. Heads. Chuckle yep. heads. Yep. Having a go at us, saying we're just political partisans, and you can just, just disregard everything. But I do wonder though if if we did like three or four or five left wing lefties in a row in a row, I think we'd I think we'd see a bit more of that that coming from the left concern. Mm -hmm. Well, you mm. would eventually, but like we're going to do a lefty season. So, mm. so what are you saying, Matt? You worried about because we're going to do I'm that? I'm not worried. Gonna, 
I'm not worried. Do I look oh, great? Yeah. I'm not worried. I'm not worried. Look at me. I'm not worried. <laughs> yeah. We're going to do a lefty season, so we'll test that theory. Um, but, you know, we'll chuck in, to, we'll chuck a right winger uh, to, to slam into the, what's that? The rampant pattern matching um, yeah. when, whenever people are getting things wrong. So, mm. yeah. but um, You can't win, I think. If you do, you know, a few lefties and a few righties, then you get accused of, like, aiming for like the center. Centrist. Yeah, as if you're just, like, keeping everything in balance. So, you just can't win. Wait, what we win. We're all right. We just Are do we, who we want winning? to do. Hashtag winning. <laughs> Hashtag winning. Yeah. Dragon energy, dragon blood. <laughs> God, that's a long time ago, but Charlie Sheen said, anyway, yeah, we think we're all right. We just, you know, we do the people that we find interesting. And, and yes, we do think about what message we're sending by the people that we cover, but we'll get to everyone. I'm yeah. actually, nobody yeah. will we do, we do a bit of meta thought, but we don't. We try not to let that guide us. Yeah, like you said, we we do what we do. People can think what they think. Um, yeah, but- the DTG matter. <laughs> yeah, that's, a, that's a, you got to keep that in mind. Yeah, the taxis in matter is ending. Um, so new one will start soon. I have one more thing, Chris. One more thing before we get to it. You know, usually in the intros, you raise your grievances, and we all have to listen to them. And you know, that's good. That's fine. That's fine. That's you know, people like that. That's why we. That's why we're here. That's why we listen. But I have a grievance this time, and it's it's relating to you. And you've been doing Uh-oh. it ever since I met you, which is you persist. You persist in sending me photographs of all of the beautiful, lovely, lovely, delicious food that you consume. It seems like on a daily basis. You're just out there in Japan eating. I do consume food on a daily basis. <laughs> this is true. <laughs> Very photogenic food, I have to say. And, you know, you know. You know the situation I'm in. You know where I live. I live in regional Queensland. It's like 300 kilometers to the nearest decent bakery. This is the food situation I'm in. If I want something good to eat, I have to cook it myself and I usually can't You have to out. hunt it first, catch <laughs> it. <laughs> yeah, and like sending me this this stuff. Do you understand this? Like sending like photographs of water to a man dying of thirst in the desert. It's like sending photographs of you on a date with your girlfriend to an incel. The, this That's, is this, this is what you're doing. You're hurting me. You want to hurt me. Look, what I'm doing is sharing culture across the internet. I'm letting people, and this is all I have, Matt. <laughs> I've got I've got young kids and too many jobs and commitments. So all I've got is. The nice Japanese food. <laughs> that's the, that's the that's the one indulgence left in, in my life. So I can't stop. It's gonna have to continue. You'll <laughs> you'll get more because I can't you know can't be drinking whiskey and fine beers, fine beers. <laughs> <laughs> but so so that's that's what I do. I, I eat good food. I'm in Japan. I'm in Japan. This is what Japan is for, Matt. But mm. yeah, I do realize it's kind of mental torture, mm. but I'll never stop it. <laughs> no, that's fair. No, fair enough. Fair enough. You're right. I get to indulge myself in ways that you cannot or choose not to. Whatever. Um, I don't want yeah. to. I don't want to go in your bodies of water with large aquatic predators. So <laughs> you, you, you can do that all you want and send me the pictures, and I feel no. Omo <laughs> in that situation. Just like, yeah, that's all right. Stonefish, poisonous, predatory fish. Just didn't have it that nice blue water, but fair enough. Fair enough. All right. Well, I've got that off my chest. Tell me what we're doing today. What's going on? No. Am I involved? I, 
I'm not I'm not letting you leave this room without my grievance uh. being first addressed. I've got one, Matt. I've got one. And it comes with a clip. It's got a clip. Ah. Like there's even a little clip for you that you don't know about. This is a surprise clip. It's oh. you see, you have access to a, like a, this thing called a soundboard, which I don't even know what that is. But this is the thing you, I've heard you refer to. Like you can use clips and stuff. I can't do that. I can't have do it. Have you ever? Have you ever made a clip? You can upload it. But so here we go. Listen, listen to this. Let's see if you can identify the voices in this clip and why this might have annoyed me. Now, that comes with, you know, some responsibilities on on Elon's personal part, which would be, you know, to be, for example, I think more responsible in dissemination of information himself sometimes, right? Like he he got himself in trouble the other day for tweeting out that that story about Paul Pelosi that that was speculative and and untrue. And I think I, I don't think what he did is, you know horrific. He deleted it when he found out that it was false. But and, and that's actually free speech working, right? He said something wrong. People ripped into him. He he realized he was wrong. And he deleted it, which seems to me a better solution than preemptively banning content, which only raises more questions than it, than it actually stops. With that said, as the face of, of responsible free speech, you know, and, and that's sort of what he's pitching at Twitter, he, I think, should should enact that himself and be a little more careful in, in the stuff that he tweets out. Well, that's a tricky balance. Uh, uh, the reason a lot of people are freaking out is because, one, he's putting his thumb on the scale by saying he is more likely to vote Republican. He's showing himself to be center-right and sort of just having a political opinion versus being this amorphous thing that doesn't have a political opinion. Um, I think if, if I were to guess, I haven't talked to him about it, but if I were to guess, he's sending a kind of signal that's important for the Twitter, the company itself, because if we're being honest, most of the employees are left-leaning. So you have to kind of send a signal that, like a resisting mechanism to say, like, uh, since most of the employees are left, it's, it's good for, uh, for Elon to be more right, to balance out the way the actual engineering is done, to say we're not going to do any kind of activism inside the engineering. If, if I were to guess, that's kind of the effective um, aspect of that, of that mechanism. And the other one, by posting the Pelosi thing, is probably to expand the Overton window, like saying we can play, we, we could post stuff, we could post conspiracy theories, and then through discourse figure out what is and isn't true. What's your grievance about this, Chris? I recognize I recognize that very funny little voice. Gee, he has a funny voice. I this is not a this is this is below the belt. I'm sorry, but that's Ben and Shapiro. Shapiro. Yeah. yeah, obviously. That, I mean, that's it's well well trodden territory to note that. So you're not oh, you're not good. the only person that's recognized that he does have a funny, like kind of point Dexter <laughs> voice, and and Lex has his own distinctive twang, but. The bit about Elon balancing out the Twitter employees, I just, um, you know, okay, okay. Yes, I'm sure that's it, Lex. It's not at all him being uh, reactionary, but it's more Lex's idea that what Elon was doing was a five-dimensional chess move in order to show that now Twitter is a space where we will share right-wing conspiracy theories and this will help the discourse because we'll find out that it's wrong and like ah yeah i have heard that clip and I, I i saw that it was described as like lex's i mean it's such a charitable interpretation where it's like oh he's doing five-dimensional chess this is his way 
of expanding the Overton window and modeling good behavior or something. And no, it's obviously just Elon he Musk bought in being the stupid conspiracy yeah. and, and shared like a, a very crap conspiracy prone website like Infowars, basically. And but it's that notion that Lex, you know, this is why I think Lex can be a little bit insidious in his naivety because he's. His position is basically arguing that, like, well, isn't promoting conspiracism in a way good for the discourse? And he, he also mentions in this interview that he signed up the Ben Shapiro's Daily Wire. And, you know, the way that Lex would frame that is he's getting sources from across the spectrum. I'd be very curious how many left wing sites that Lex has signed up to. You know, he has Joe Rogan. As a, a mentor, he uh, idolizes Elon Musk. He's signed up to the Daily Wire, pals around with Michael Malice and whatnot. I, I think like Lex is just unaware himself of where his own Overton window is being pulled. It's that thing, isn't it, where Lex's excessive charity, you know, is to always- To certain people. To certain people, yeah, selectively applied and this kind of extending infinite love to whoever, Vladimir Putin or something, it's it's actually not a virtue. And I No, yeah. the, mm. like extreme naivety is not a virtue. I don't, though to his credit, and again I think credit where credit is due, he did recently have an episode with Fiona Hill, who is a, a kind of foreign policy expert on Russia and Ukraine and she had a very good episode discussing, you know, the situation and mm. and Putin's motivation and whatnot. And I I do think that it's right to recognize that people like Lex do do that and that the discussion is useful, but it doesn't actually balance up like presenting Oliver Stone as an equally well informed, just that's an alternative perspective. It's like that fake balance of having a climate change denialist followed mm. by an environmental scientist or, yep. or climatologist on. So, yeah. Yeah, no, I completely agree. And like, we're very critical of many of the people we cover, including Lex Fridman. But this is not to say that they never do anything good, that they don't have any good intentions. It's just that, I don't know, like if you're, if you're getting it wrong 50% of the time or more, then I don't know. <laughs> I just... Uh, just like if you can't recognize Joe Rogan's skewy and stuff, there's just there's fundamental limitations to your perspective. And Lex's naivety or whatever, like selectively applied extreme charity. I mean, he doesn't have extreme charity to his critics, right? He just blocks people on Twitter for very slight criticism. So, you know, it's not... The love needs orders. to be reciprocated, right? And the danger, yeah. the danger there is that, you know... <laughs> Should be There's obvious. a specific kind of person. Yeah. That, yeah. I just want old-fashioned journalists. I've said it before. I want old-fashioned journalists who are not looking for love in the discourse. The wrong places. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Agreed. Well, well. so Matt, today, yeah. now, now that we've aired those grievances, yours and mine, and we've we've caught up on the guru's fear to, to some extent, today I have an interesting interview with a rather fascinating academic, if I do say so myself. No, I'm not talking about myself. I, I interviewed Manveer Singh, somebody who you 
follow on Twitter and um, Big Admirer. Yeah, I have come across his work. I think he's a very interesting person with an expertise in shamanism. And we discuss potential parallels to gurus and potential discrepancies. So, yeah. Yeah. No, and I just, um, I, I do follow Nandis Singh and we talked about him for a long time actually before he came on and I was looking forward to this interview oh, yeah. quite a bit. I don't look forward to all of our interviews, Chris. I come to some of them <laughs> with might, great reluctance. You insult our guest? <laughs> <laughs> but I was looking forward to this one and I, I missed it due to no one's fault but my own. It was in my calendar. You put it in my calendar. It was up there in the evening and I, when I glanced at it and I, in the morning and it, I didn't, hadn't made the window big enough and it wasn't showing the evening. It's and all right, Matt. I had it's an evening. Right. I had an evening. Relax. I couldn't, I couldn't be there. I'm sorry. I, I wasn't to even going to mention it, although I do realize that now I should explain that you're not there for mm. the, this interview. But, I, you know, Matt was... Matt may have been slightly I was, I was indisposed. I was indisposed. <laughs> inebriated. No, indisposed. I, I, indis, either or. Yeah, I was. I know. Or it was just, it was impossible. So, so it's unfortunate. It's just unfortunate. And, and in any case, as a result, Manvir and I kind of geek out a little bit on various anthropological topics. But yeah, I think people will enjoy anyway. And you can listen back, Matt, and you'll have your own decoding the guru's experience for yourself and you can see all the insights that you missed out on and we'll 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 get your feedback after yes yes and we'll get manvir back and i'll be there for that one yeah. that's right okay so here we go okay so joining me today is the academic researcher manvir singh currently affiliated with the Institute for Advanced Study in Toulouse. Though when I met you at a conference on top of a ancient <laughs> citadel in Ariche, you were somewhere else. You were at Harvard at that time, right? I was, yeah. I was doing my PhD then. Yeah. Yes. So, uh, Manvir, I would, if I was identifying what you are, not as a person, but... <laughs> But as a like an academic, I would put you in cultural anthropologist or evolutionary anthropologist. But is that a slur against you, or <laughs> what do you self-identify as? At the moment, I guess I identify as an anthropologist, as a cultural or cognitive or evolutionary anthropologist. So your work is is really interesting and like kind of straddles a couple of different disciplines. And for people who are familiar with the work of Joe Henrik, he was your supervisor, right? For your PhD. He was. So he straddles economics and anthropology and psychology fields. So you're following in those, uh, that week. <laughs> I'm trying to think of a good metaphor. I'm not a good guru. I'm very bad with metaphors. So. <laughs> Um, yeah, an interesting thing that is relevant for our show is like we're often dealing with evolutionary psychologists who are in the guru sphere, and that tends to be people that are very concerned with mating habits and, and also evolutionary strategies and that kind of, yeah, dovetail possibly into manosphere kind of stuff. But we quite often do have people because Matt and I 
argue that there is terrible work in evolutionary psychology, the kind of area, but there's also good work. And the good work that's in that field is often very good and very interesting. And, and like I kind of view evolution as an important frame when you're looking at human culture to use. And your work is often one of the ones that I cite as like good examples of how you do it right. But I'm, I'm curious, do you encounter much pushback because of adopting an evolutionary frame or that doesn't come up that much in, in your research life? That people are, you know, doubt the the use of an evolutionary frame. Yeah, I mean, I guess it depends on who we're talking about. But in anthropology, there is this huge schism where a lot of people are very against evolutionary approaches. So there was actually, I remember, I once applied to a position, and my my cover letter is typically when I was a graduate student, human evolutionary biology, and I took off that and replaced it with Peabody Museum of Archaeology and Ethnology um, because I thought even the word evolutionary would be triggering. Yeah, I, I understand that I've, I'm applying for various positions recently, including at Christian universities and my upbringing as a Catholic often comes into mentions and in cover letters. I don't dwell so much on my current <laughs> status of belief, but... You know, just you do what you have to right, when you're applying for positions. But but yeah, so your work has looked at a whole bunch of different topics. One that's, I think, quite relevant to the, the gurus that we look at is your treatment of shamanism and the evolutionary role that it may have played in societies. So I want to ask you about that, but I, I also want to ask before that, like a good anthropologist, so... Manvir, your like field sites or where you've done most of your research, what what kind of part of the world or what kind of communities do you regard yourself as specializing in? So I've done most of my work with these people, the Mentawe. So they live on this archipelago, the Mentawe archipelago, off the west coast of Sumatra. So for anyone who's familiar, Indonesia is this nation of islands stretching from New Guinea to the Indian Ocean. And so almost as far west as you can go, right at the edge of the Indian Ocean, is the Mentawai Archipelago. And I've been working there since um, 2014. And I have studied shamanism there. I've studied their indigenous religion, healing ceremonies, and their law. More recently, I have also been scoping out visiting communities in Colombia, particularly the Orinoco region, like the Northwest. But that my first trip was just earlier this year. It's it's much more of a shallow research experience. And now, how long did you spend, like in total, in the communities in Sumatra? In total, I've spent maybe like 13 months. Yeah, I haven't been able to go since the beginning of COVID, unfortunately, but I'm hoping to go this coming January for a couple months. The, the world is returning to open status. The Even Japan, just like last week, I think, opened the borders again. So yeah, so they, with that nice ethnographic context explained, so you, 
I could attempt to summarize it, but I'd probably do it poorly. You wrote a, a target article for BBS, Behavioral and Brain Sciences, which for people who, uh, probably most of the people, most of the people who listen won't know, this is a, a journal where when you write a target article, you then get a bunch of responses from all different scholars, experts in the field, and then you have to write a response to their critique. So it's a very involved thing. And and you wrote an article which was a single author piece, uh, which means that you have to deal with all of the criticism. So it's already like a significant like piece of work to undertake. But the thesis in that about it was outlining a, a kind of evolutionary perspective on shamanism. So how would you like kind of broad picture summarize that what your thesis was? Yeah, so we could break it down at a couple levels. Most generally, the argument was that shamanism reliably develops in human societies everywhere because it is just an incredibly compelling means of controlling uncertainty. And I can like break down that down a little, but the idea is essentially people want control over the uncertain in their lives, both informationally. So I, we want information about all of this stuff, and then we also want outcomes to to happen in our favor. And that creates these kinds of markets of magic. Specialists are competing to provide the most compelling services, the most compelling means of controlling uncertainty. And that drives the evolution of this incredibly psychologically compelling cluster of practices to, to essentially convince clients that this individual can, can provide them with exactly what they need. And I can go a, a bit into more I like what those techniques are, but that's ju- the general perspective on shamanism. So in in that framework, that compelling cluster of of features, cognitively compelling and socially compelling cluster of features, what are they? Like, what are the key ones? Yeah, so the, the thing that I argue in that piece, in which I really focus on that piece, in which I use as a perspective on all of these is different practices that make an individual seem different from normal humanity and in so doing make them seem make it seem more plausible or more tenable that they have special powers so in something that i'm writing right now i'm thinking about these all as i'm trying to coin this word or i was like there needs to be a word for this for this process and i've been thinking about this word xenize which comes from like xeno xenos meaning foreign or other and it's like using all of these techniques to to look like you are fundamentally different from normal humanity. So you observe a lot of deprivation. You have these dramatic initiations where you claim that, you know, your your skeleton has be recon- been reconstructed. You talk about like dying and coming back to life about having your body parts replaced with new body parts. All of these are about a practitioner undergoing some kind of fundamental transformation about like drifting away from normal humanity. And that makes it more plausible, more compelling, more tenable that they can do things that that normal humans cannot. And so related to that is trance. You know, this thing that really defines shamanism is that they they enter what seem to be these non-ordinary states. And some people argue that, oh, the non-ordinary states, the trance of shamanism is all about what trance psychologically does. You know, it creates greater insight. It allows you to be a better problem solving, whatever. What I'm arguing is that 
yes, trance might have these effects, but the reason that trance so often occurs is it's kind of this performance of otherness. It's this individual who is experiencing, who is looking nothing like what a normal human does, and that makes it more compelling, more credible that they are, are doing something that normal humans cannot do. Is that all clear? Yeah, yeah, very clear. And there's there's kind of two immediate parallels that like crop up to me. The, the obvious one related to the show that you're currently on is that we find similar sorts of narratives, obviously without the magical elements usually, depends on whether Jordan Peterson is talking or not, but um, in the narratives of the gurus that we look at where they often have these stories about in how childhood they were recognized as you know special and, and in, in many cases it's actually presented as that they were seen to have learning difficulties or some problem but this was later recognized as a unique way of approaching the world so that seems to parallel and maybe in a less dramatic less supernatural way the kind of narrative that you're describing shamans to go through and that makes me you know it's a very appealing image like as the gurus of the modern secular instantiation of shamans when well, we can talk about that idea but the other one which i'm just curious to get your thoughts on first is so like superhero narratives and in popular media or or, or like you know anime characters in in japan they often are represented in the same way, having these special powers and transformational experiences, and you find those in lots of myths and legends. So is the argument that that is a cognitive attractor that applies broadly across all these contexts, but there's additional elements that make it make it flow into the shamanism stream? Or is that like slightly different when you're talking about, you know, kind of fictional figures who you can't probably directly interact with? Yeah, that's a great question. So I guess we can start with the second one. The parallel you're drawing with superheroes, I think, is a great one. And that's like one that I often think about, where I think that really demonstrates this logic where the storyteller, the narrator, the writer needs to convince you, at least in, in this world that they're building, that this person can shoot lasers out of their eyes, that they can be incredibly fast, that, you know, they can be a spider or whatever, that they can do things that like the average person cannot. And what's really fundamental to that is explaining why they can do this and, and other people cannot. Like what is, how have they been essentially transformed to facilitate that? And that seems to explain or contribute to the fact that Superhero stories are incredibly diverse, but one of the few things that all of them seem to stare is an origin story. It's something that tells you why this person is other, why they deviate from humanity. I've actually lately been reading a lot into a superhero origin story, so it's great that you brought this up. And one thing that I really like about them, and that I think provides an interesting parallel for shamanism, is that they really seem to reflect people's conception of what need what constitutes essential transformation. So, you know, if we go from the 1940s to now, we see that origin stories change over time. First, there, are, you know, it's a lot about nuclear stuff. And then at points, it's about magical stuff. Now it's really about like bioengineering, genetic, genetic mutants. As our conceptions of, of like a fundamental transformation changes, so do the stories to convince us or to at least tell us that these individuals are different. To your broader question about like, how should we think about the relationship between superheroes and, and shaman? 
or of all of these narratives, these fictional narratives. So I think what's going on across them is they're reflecting this more general intuition that if a person claims to do things that normal people cannot, if they essentially like violate our concept of what a human is capable of, they have to they have to be a different kind of entity. They have to be conceptually different. In superhero stories, that deviation is used towards the narrative or for the function of exploring like what someone could do if they have special powers and you know thinking about the entertainment or whatever. In shamanism, this intuition is leveraged to create the experience to create the perception that this individual can provide a service. You know, shamanism is a service in many in many instances, and I think some people are resistant to this idea. But shamanism is is overwhelmingly a service and oriented profession in mm. a way. You know, and so th- they might be using similar narratives that fictional writers are at least like on a on a maybe a, a higher level if we think about them in in this higher level comparison. But for them, it's really about using those narratives to convince you that that they can provide a service that other people cannot. Yeah. Um, And I think that brings us to your first topic, which we can also go into. Yeah. So I I do want to get the gurus, but I, I want to follow up with something that you kind of raised there, because in your paper, you're talking about like shamanism as one of the potential first professions to emerge in in societies and cross-culturally recurrent profession and i can imagine there's some well actually i don't th- this is a probably a question for you so i can imagine some more progressive liberal minded people somewhat reactive to the notion of seeing shamans as a profession and creating narratives about their powers and that kind of stuff because there's a somewhat of an implication of potentially exploitative or at least deceitful approach to things but on the other hand i know from anthropology that shamans very much regard what they're doing yes as a calling but also as that's their profession and that's the that's what they do so i'm i'm wondering your article i know for evolutionary anthropologists or that kind of thing that's a perfectly reasonable thing to discuss shamanism as a profession. But do you get pushback from like putting a potentially Western modern frame on, you know, a practice which it, it doesn't fit well onto? And, and relatedly, how do the people in the communities react? Are they aware of your kind of theory around shamanism? And how do they react to that? Okay, that's a great question. There's a lot there. So I'll start to address whatever I remember and then we can dig in. <laughs> yeah. So it was actually being in Mentawe that really highlighted for me the extent to which shamanism is, service, is, is centered around a service. And it's a bit complicated because on the one hand, shamans are, so in Mentawe they're known as sikere, and they are regarded as as you know, special, powerful humans, and they're charismatic, and they they provide a center to social, spiritual, political life. On the other hand, it's it's quite clear to many people that that it, it's a service because you know you're sick, you have to choose among these sikere. They have to. You're, you're evaluating different ones. There's constant talk about who's you know to what is is his trance fake? Does he really know the songs? Like. 
is he truly a sikere? Is he just a sikere because, you know, his dad was able to whatever pay them? And is it always a he, by the way, in those communities? Yeah, so it's, a, it's slightly complicated. So the word sikere refers to both individuals in a couple. So the, and the couple is usually male and female, or actually every example I know is male and female, but it is the man who is called to... So a, a simple answer to your question is yes, it's a he. Um, <laughs> yeah. But it's a bit more complicated because both of them are known as sikere. They, they heal in something called pabete, healing ceremonies. And in the healing ceremonies, it's almost always the male who is called. I actually, in my data set of 40-something ceremonies, don't have a single one in which a female is called. Although I spoke to a, a doctor who's been in Mentawi for a long time, and she has said that she has seen or heard of females being called. So I don't want to say that females are never called. These are like female deities or spirits that are... No, no, sorry. Sorry, the, the female and the couple. the Like a, a woman sikere, a woman shaman. I was thinking symbolically like a male and female, but you mean actual oh, no. couples. Yeah, so, okay. So uh, I'll give you a simple version and then if we want to, <laughs> we can go into the complex version. A simple version is in Mentawe, overwhelmingly, men are shaman and men are called teal in healing ceremonies. Men... Male shamans are believed to have the power to see spirits, and they provide these services. The more complicated thing is that when a shaman is initiated, both he and his wife have to observe particular taboos. Both he and his wife come to be known as sikere, and there are a couple of these wives I know of who are also regarded as having these special powers, and although I have never seen them called in one of these Babete, one of these kind of all-day healing ceremonies, I have heard that these women are sometimes called in like more private healing contexts. So, yeah. I'm sorry for uh, sidetracking you, there, but <laughs> that was a, a very clear explanation. And I'll remind you as well that you were explaining about the reaction to like your framework right. and stuff. <laughs> sorry, I interrupted right. you. right. Yeah, it, it's kind of a complicated thing because in Mentawe, people recognize, they recognize that, that Sikere are competing and that you choose them on the basis of who seems the best. But there is a double narrative where you never want to signal that. Um, mm. So sometimes I'll, I'll talk to someone and I'll be like, why did you choose these, these Sikere to come and heal you? And they'll say, oh, they were nearby or, you know, they're, they're my, my wife's relatives. Um, but of course, you know, the wife has many relatives in this area. There are many Sikere nearby. Like, uh, And then when I've talked to other people, it's like, yes, we, we want to talk like that because if we get sick um, and other Sikere are not available, we don't want to give the impression that we prefer some over others or we, that we think that some are good and others are not. Do you know what mm, I mean? You, yeah, yeah. So you are, you are ranking them and comparing them in your mind, but you don't want to do that verbally because you don't want people to feel like you you undervalue them or, or maybe publicly offend them yeah um, so i imagine there are concepts of like honor or equivalence to honor in in play like fierce yeah it's not necessarily honor in so for instance i, I was recently reading this phonography of, of bedouin egyptian bedouin society mm. or maybe libyan bedouins um where honor i think looks very very different in mentawi it's like it's more like general reputation. Um, uh. It feels different from 
from like a very honor-based society. Um, so just politeness, like kind of the social norm. You shouldn't denigrate people. Yeah. It's more like politeness. Yeah. That makes sense. That makes sense. Yeah. So there's a there's a recognition that you know people it is a profession or different options and so on and and yet maybe it's not entirely kosher to completely focus on the commercial aspects as like the main thing, right? Because it's, exactly. it's dealing with uh, spiritual powers and that that kind of thing. It's dealing with spiritual powers. It's dealing with illness. Yeah. This thing is, it also manifests in the provide in the and how shamans provide their services. Um, so it's it's not super appropriate for a shaman to be asked or to ask to be paid. Um, but a gift, and yet it is always expected that a shaman that you know when a shaman comes, you will sacrifice pigs and chickens, and that the shamans will get the best parts. But it is not. It's a little complicated to talk about that as payment because the shaman wants to maintain, or there is this maintenance of a perception on on both the provider and the and the client's part that the shaman is here to heal you and that you are are in turn sharing with the shaman. A similar thing actually occurs with food sharing in Mentawe. You know, people will, for example, someone might have a, they might call a lot of people to help them move a house or help them construct a house. And then it's expected that afterwards they will share meat. Uh, they might kill a pig and distribute mm. the meat to everyone who, who shared. But it is not appropriate to, if you are given an, an inappropriate, or if you, let's say you help move a house or you help build a house, but then the person does not share. You can't, for instance, like demand payment. You can't find them. You can't go to someone else. And the Mentawi find each other constantly. It's it's a society that indigenously is quite litigious. But there are certain domains in which in which the transactional nature is a bit taboo. Uh, yeah, a bit taboo. That's that's a, that sounds similar to a lot of parallels I can think of, including in Japan around the provision of like uh, funeral services. There's obvious costs and money involved, but a lot of it has to be phrased in you know a specific way, not to make it seem profit orientated. Even though a lot of it looks very much like standard capitalism, um, just in a specific domain. But that I guess the a difference even would be even like a potluck in yeah, Western yeah. context. But uh, I'm thinking that that's like in the case of like. Korean shamanism, which I'm, you know, vaguely familiar with, it feels like there's a much more direct and overt acknowledgement of payment for services and stuff. But it'll depend on the context as to how much that is kosher. That kind of answers the question of around how receptive they are. How about evolutionary anthropologists? Like I say, I think they'd be pretty open to that consideration. But do you ever get accusations that you're applying westernized ethnocentric categories that don't make sense in indigenous perspectives sure yeah yeah and in, in, in many ways and shamanism is a topic where that has long been something that people have talked about and i think for very good reason you know earlier you have eliad i hope i'm pronouncing his name right he's so big in the field um, but he comes out with this book, Shamanism, and he talks about a very particular model of shamanism, which involves soul flight and hunting and gathering societies and animal spirits. So I, I define shamanism much more generally, as I think do, do many people of individuals entering what appear to be 
non-ordinary states to engage with unseen realities and provide services. Eliad had a much more constrained definition or a much more constrained framework. Siberia is the the model, um, you know, like I mentioned, your soul leaves your body in trance. There are maybe different levels. There's a, a lot of importance of flight. Um, there are animal helpers. And so people had this framework and then they're going to different contexts, wildly diverse contexts and and applying this very particular model. So that's just to say that I think shamanism, like many topics in anthropology, has been saddled with this this problem of having a particular expectation and projecting it on, onto the society. And I think the study of shamanism is still quite wary of that. And so, of course, I've been, I've confronted that. But then there is, as you talked about, like the particular way in which I frame shamanism. And that's something I'm constantly working on and constantly being careful about. The way that I really think about shamanism is that it is a technology. It's, you know, mm. made performing deviations from, from normal humanness to assure you that, that I can do things that normal humans cannot. And I think this is, this can be used for good. You know, Polly Wiesner, this anthropologist who works with the, these, um, South African, the Jutwanzi, I'm like wary about saying their name because I, I don't feel confident in my ability to like properly do clicks. Um, <laughs> it's better than mine. Trust me. Trust me. <laughs> but so she was recently telling me about a time when she was in the field and she woke up screaming. She was incredibly anxious, and they immediately started a trance dance. Um, some of the some of the the people in the camp went into trance, and they healed her. You know, they're putting their hands on her. They're they're entering trance, and she talked about like really feeling love, really feeling the, the way that it's conceptualized. There is like half death that you are you are going to the edge of death. It's an incredibly dangerous or risky endeavor, and so everyone coming out everyone clapping all night and these shamans showing up for you really is a demonstration of commitment of mm. investment and she said the next day she felt so much better and I, so i just want to provide that as an example of a case where you know i think it's a technology that that could be used positively or, or has many positive effects but i think that it also is often used for exploitation you know sometimes in the same society it's used for both i was recently, oh my God, I think this is like my favorite quote that I've ever come across from a shaman. Um, so it was from a shaman among the Sora, uh, a group in India, and he he uh, channeled this, he's working with a young widow and he channels her husband and, you know, possessed by her, her dead husband, presumably he says something like, I really want to have sex with you, but I must do it through the body of this shaman. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, there are all kinds of examples of shamans exploiting their position, the perception of their power for sex, for food, for resources, for whatever. You know, shamans are humans. They're people who have self-interested ends and want to use that to get what they want. Yeah. So that's, you know, that's a really fascinating example. And like two things I wanted to mention in response was one, I have a very similar opinion to you about the criticisms of the term religion, right, applied broadly. There's lots of legitimacy to those critiques, but I think you can you can bypass them in large respect by just applying a sensible definition. The people think you can't do that, but I disagree. So I'm completely on board with your approach to shamanism. But what you were just saying about you know people performing social roles and and shamans being like parts of community, often associated with healing, and can actually be 
you know, healers providing herbal remedies and actual medicines in communities as well. But I think to like Western audiences, they're aware of and often very critical of the people who claim to channel dead relatives, right? There are many people are aware of cold reading and, and hot reading techniques, right? The, so for those that aren't, but like people appearing to solicit the information, but really using kind of manipulative techniques in order for you to give them the information or hot reading being just that you collect the information through other sources. Like maybe you get people to write cards down and, and then, you know, extract the information from it. So there, there's a lot of very prevalent critiques of that kind of, the word is escaping me for those people, but that the people who channel the dead. Um, mediums. Mediums. Yeah. Yeah. But on the other side, there's the current growing industry around psychedelic experiences and ayahuasca ceremonies and, you know, the kind of fascination in the tech spheres with taking trips into the jungle to have vision quests and that kind of thing. And maybe that's always been there. I think like if you go to the 80s, you're going to find yuppies also expressing interest in it. But seeing those things as within the same arena, I think is something that people don't do. And they would be more wary of applying the same kind of criticisms that they would to mediums operating in a paranormal sphere as they would to applying criticisms to, you know, something which is seen as a non-Western cultural context. So, yeah, but I, I personally just feel that, you know, like you say, humans are humans. Some of them are good, some of them are, in, and even the ones that are engaged in the exploitative behaviors are often, you know, in other aspects of their life, very nice. So, yeah, it's a complicated topic. And I guess, Manvir, that leads nicely to the connection to modern gurus and i don't know how <laughs> how closely you follow modern gurus the kind of people we talk about jordan peterson and brett weinstein and, and all those such figures but just broadly speaking initially do you yourself see you know kind of parallels there or you think they're kind of different phenomenon with quite strong divisions yeah so i don't think those are mutually incompatible like i, I definitely think shamans are different from modern gurus <laughs> <laughs> Like, I definitely think uh, shamans are, are different from modern gurus, and I think there are, there are probably parallels. So I can, I can try to elaborate on some parallels, but maybe it would be better if I, like, asked you directed questions to, to pull out the, the parallels. Sure, I've, I know a couple of gurus. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I guess we can go from, from two ends. One end would be to start by saying, to what extent are gurus promising people control over uncertainty? Like there is probably things that that people find unpredictable or uncontrollable in their lives, whether it's their status or whatever. And the the first parallel would be that uh, gurus would would promise some control while potentially not actually being able to provide it. Do you think that happens? Yeah. So the two things that immediately come to mind are one the response in the pandemic where many gurus leaned into anti-vaccine narratives or promoting alternative treatments ivermectin hydroxychloroquine right and in those respects uh yes it's a very direct medical setting but they are in essence claiming that they have the correct procedures you know the correct medicines that you need to guard your health and that there are these threats 
that other people don't recognize as threats. And, and so there's a parallel there, but there also seems to me like this might be a bit of a more of a stretch, but let's see what you think. Uh, Jordan Peterson and the more like symbolically inclined and, and maybe slightly religiously inclined, in his case, heavily religiously inclined gurus, I think they, and actually maybe some of the secular ones, present a kind of spiritual health, right? That like people today, modern secular society in a kind of barbarian way are very alienated. They're very atomized and they've lost their heart, right? And so if they engage with the kind of thinking, the kind of philosophies or the kind of traditions that they are highlighting, people can regain their vitality and spiritual essence and, you know, in, in many cases become the young men that they were supposed to be. So that that seems to strike me as like two potential clear parallels. Yeah, yeah, no, I think both of those make sense. I think the second one, I, I would imagine that it would be especially potent or effective if it could be connected to things that people are dissatisfied in their life, things that people want control over or want to resolve that they currently cannot. Um, oh, you want you know, whatever X, you want to be more healthy, you want this, something that, that people can't get control over, but um, yeah, but that there would be some promise of a, of a service. A partner. Yes, exactly. Yes, yes. Um, and so, okay, so if we're going back into this parallel with shamanism, the next question would be, what gives these people the credibility? What These people are presumably claiming to have insight, have solutions into problems that are otherwise very hard to resolve into information that is otherwise very difficult to acquire. The technique, again, that shamans often use, uh, and, you know, as, as magical religious specialists, they use a number of techniques to create perceptions of authority. Um, but, you know, the one that I have really been thinking about and talking about is this showing that you are fundamentally different from other people. Um, and you, so you mentioned something like this earlier, that, you know, they think about the world in a different way, you know, from an early age, they they had different kinds of minds. But yeah, then the next, if we're thinking about the parallel, the next question I would ask you is, are there ways in which the gurus that, that you just mentioned also create authority or credibility by promoting perceptions of, of differing fundamentally or, or in interesting ways from, from normal humans? Yeah. So there is the, like, like you say, there's the Hard word, there's often these references to always thinking differently, right? That they just seen the world in a way that other people never could. And like, there's this clip that I might insert here where you have Eric and Brett Weinstein, the brothers, discussing their experiences together and basically saying that they are somewhat unique in that when they find themselves in the situation where everyone else, every scientific authority is telling them that they're wrong, that that gives them pleasure and more certainty that they're right. I think you and I share a certain delight when we do our homework and we discover something interesting and absolutely nobody else gets it. Mm -hmm. That would feel bad to most people because they would feel like, what am I doing wrong? Why does nobody else understand this point? To you and me, that feels good. It is to know that you have achieved something, you have discovered something, and that nobody else can even recognize it gives you some sort of sense of how far ahead you might be. It seems pathological, but like I uh, see it, but the, the, from my perspective, but that that strikes me as 
what you were talking about, you know, always having this shifted perception. But the other component is that many of them claim to undergo a kind of trial by fire in the modern environment. It's often a public cancellation effort. And in those cases, they often say that, you know, where other people would have folded or kind of bowed down to the mob, that they were to steal a Jordan Peterson metaphor, like they would go into the belly of the wheel, fight the dragon, and and come back, not necessarily like fully transformed, but more realized the person that they always felt that they were. And now the world gets to see. And they also do tend to say explicitly, I'd lean into Brett Weinstein because he kind of fits the mold so well, but he explicitly talked about identifying others who are reliable because of undergoing similar ordeals. And, you know, I I think he's less applicable to the kind of toxic guru approach, but like Sam Harris, in a way, displays a great sympathy for anybody that has underwent a kind of cancellation effort. So I don't know if that's stretching the parallel, but public cancellation seems to be potentially playing the role of a ritual transformative event, which gives you like special insight and power. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. I do want to be careful about not stretching the analogy. Well, um, well what about, so this is, this is my perception. I'd like to ask you a question. So my perception is that shamanism in large part, or at least in many traditions is a apprenticeship system where you 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 do take a guru or a master and you know you learn the techniques over time and in many cases the the kind of secular gurus they don't emphasize that they emphasize you know the ersatz knowledge maybe they had some some figures who you know inspired them but in most occasions they're saying it was their unique insight and they're interested in other people with unique insights but it's it's fundamentally coming from them and my my impression with shamans is rather that they're tapping into a power which already exists and and traditions and systems which are like kind of uh, like a profession like you say so is that a distinction or is that specific schools of or cultures of shamanism yeah so i don't know systematic work that has looked at the frequency with which shamans train with or, you know, have learned from particular people. I do share your impression that it's that it's quite common. At the same time, two two things come to mind. So first, it is the case that shamans sometimes do build credibility without necessarily bringing on a teacher. They might, you know, from an early age enter trance and then spontaneously heal people. But the other thing that that you actually remind me of are prophets, and I think of prophets often as a special class of shamans. Where you know, if we think about shamans as service providers who enter non-ordinary states. Prophets often are also promising services or promising control, but over problems that are much larger. And so, you know, prophets are co-creating with their audiences narratives about the end of the world or or large uh, society being pit against you and your group. And they often use similar techniques as as what we might think of as as more mundane shamans narratives of, of, of difference, narratives of, of fundamental transformation, often also explicitly trans, but the scope of the problem is much larger. And, and so, you know, maybe they have some of their authority or expertise draw on a tradition, draw on learning from someone. But of course, they also have to 
have to build something much larger than that. You know, it's not only, okay, yes, I have the training to treat these illnesses, but I, for some reason, have to be the guy, have to be the person who can get the the British colonial monster out of here or who can, you know, bring back the the planes that brought incredible gifts or who can liberate us from the from the end of the world. I also just wanted to be clear and careful about not overstretching the analogy with the gurus because, you know, obviously the gurus are not entering trance. <laughs> they're not entering like non-ordinary states. They're, they're not healing as much. So, you know, I, I think we can get insight into into how they work through some of these structure analogies, but I don't want to claim they're shamans. And I also want to be like quite clear about the ways in which they're not. Uh, no, I, you know, I, I think that's not. an important caveat to add. And also, I think the, the prophet archetype might actually be, you know, a better fit like you describe. And also, it's not our particular area of expertise, but I'm thinking that there are probably a lot more overt sales in the conspirituality sphere, like the kind of health and wellness figures The I don't know if you're aware of the liver king, this extremely buff, uh, I think 50 year old man with an improbable six pack who consumes raw meat and you know talks oh, about oh i've heard about this he does I, is this the person who's constantly or connected to this area where they're drawing parallels with the inuit oh they're hunter gatherers that only eat maybe maybe i'm it's i don't think parallel. he does that specifically but it's kind of hard to tell because they're just <laughs> constantly describing it as th- that they're connected to the ancient traditions of man and it it, it right, goes to right, hunter right. galleries, but occasionally goes to Atlantis. So it's you know <laughs> the, you can take your your pick. But so one thing I w- I was curious about Manvir, and it given that you know you were talking about shamans being people who were marked as extraordinary or have some feature right which they can use to signal themselves as different. And I'm I'm thinking about like the case of Om Shinrikyo, the leader Asahara Shoko was blind, right? And there's a long history in Japan of of blind people being masseuse, but also people that can channel spirits or or connected to unseen forces, right? And and also in lots of societies, women who are traditionally excluded from various spiritual roles are able to enter through like kind of shamanist channeling practices, not also the case in Japan. So in that respect, I'm just curious, is that something from your research that you've seen that people with disabilities or physical deformities, that this gives them an avenue in societies that, you know, otherwise would be, they're likely just to face discrimination and exclusion or what? Marginalization. That's the word. That's the word. Thank you. So is, is shamanism in in societies potentially providing like this avenue for people to potentially deal with or to transform what would be seen as, you know, marginalizing forces into a a power? Like, or is that giving too much of a positive gloss on on that feature? No, so I I I would generally agree. I would say that in many contexts, people use particular features that would otherwise be sources of marginalization as signs of of shamanic power, potential shamanic power. An example, the Wikipedia page for shamanism, the main picture is a Boryat shaman. If you zoom in on his finger, you actually see that he has 
I'm not sure how you describe it. It might be that he has two thumbs that are fused into one, or he had a, a single thumb that was split early in development and then fused. Um, but that is a, uh, these, you know, other fingers are common signs in North and Central Asia. Yeah. The the blindness example you provided, I think, is is interesting, not only because it, it points at this this larger phenomenon, but also because in different contexts, different characteristics are taken as markers. So like I mentioned in, in Central and North Asia, having an extra finger is often taken as a marker. Or I was recently reading, if you're born as a baby still in the amniotic sac, mm. you know, the, the water doesn't break, that is taken as a sign. Or in some cultures, if your teeth come in from a different part of the mouth, that is taken as a sign as you're developing it. it it's uh, culturally variable which particular experiences or characteristics can be taken as signs. But yeah, I agree with your comment. And yeah, the the other comment that you made that in many contexts where women are oppressed or marginalized and especially prohibited from engaging in some kind of otherwise, you know, ritual authority, those are societies in which you develop these these cults, these women-led shamanic cults. There's like a, a great book on on this topic by Lewis that's all about how reliably this this pattern seems to emerge where those societies that are most hierarchical that are often most oppressive towards women also in a, in a strange way seem to to end up producing these these shamans yeah i i know <laughs> i know i've touched it on a tangent but i and i i think you touched on this in your paper but i can't help but ask about it so it seems to me then that when you get world religions like christianity and islam you know becoming dominant within societies and interacting with shamanistic traditions. Yes, there there is co-option of those into the traditions, you know, people getting visions, communing with angels or saints or, or those kind of things. But my impression is that there is a much stronger tradition of repression of those expressions and that seeing those people as a threat. And actually, in the more religiously inclined gurus that we look at today, they often are invoking, you know, they're talking about symbolic interpretations of society and culture, but they they invoke that kind of figure, like witches and like with Jordan Peterson and the Chaos Dragon. So they invoke them as potential sources of disorder. So I'm wondering from a, you know, cultural evolution perspective, is that the case that doctrinal religions just strongly prohibit the expressions of shamanism in the territory where they're dominant? Okay, that is a great question, and that's something I, I think about a bunch. Yeah, I think one story that people often tell about the history of religion is something like, in the beginning there was shamanism, and then shamanism was replaced by or evolved into these doctrinal world religions. But another way that one can think about it, and actually a way that I think is more accurate, is to to think that shamanism and these doctrinal religions are constantly warring against each other. And this is because, first, shamanism is is a, very often a bottom-up phenomenon. It is, you know, people are looking for control, they want to heal, they want uh, otherwise inaccessible information, they want their business to do well. I was talking to someone yesterday who works with the Schwar, and, and they're like, yeah, the night before big soccer games, they go to shamans. You know, people want control over uncertainty, and shamanism is this practice that that just develops because it is, it is so psychologically compelling. That is threatening for 
institutionalized religion for religious authorities because it threatens their, their monopoly, their jurisdiction over the supernatural. Shamans are charismatic upstarts. They are charismatic fires that threaten to draw followers away from you. And so doctrinal religions, institutionalized religions, have they take different approaches to quashing this. One approach, I remember reading some stuff, and I think this is in the BBS paper about in the 15th and 16th centuries, the Catholic Church was in, in a striking way trying to delegitimize trans. They were like trying to draw on the, the arguments of natural philosophers who are saying trans is a natural phenomenon. When you deprive yourself, when you withdraw from sensory, sensory stimulation, the experience, the, the shaking, the sensory dissociation is not kind of the supernatural, but that's like a natural physiological response. An interesting case where like the Catholic Church is weaponizing science. You can even actually see this happening in the history of religions. So one example is Mormonism. Early Mormonism really overwhelmingly featured charisma, featured speaking in tongues, featured healing. And I think there's an early quote from Brigham Young, maybe that's something along the lines of, we are reproducing like the earliest days of, of, of the Christian communities. And then you find later quotes by Brigham Young, where he is arguing that no one should, you know, this ecstasy that people are experiencing is introducing mud into the religious dogma. You know, he's very, he's very against it because he can recognize that it's threatening their, their religious authority. He was the person that looked in the hat, right? Is that him? The no, no, that is um, Joseph Smith. Oh, sorry. He, <laughs> yeah, that's but he was a, another prominent early Mormon. Yeah, so because that strikes me as you know, not necessarily going into a trance, but you're gaining access to secret knowledge via an, an unusual apparatus like the hat that no one else should look into. For um, yeah. So uh, anyway, I'm conflating to early Mormons, but but the, I mean, it's it's also interesting because the Mormons have had a publicity campaign. We might say I don't want to be sacrilegious, but I guess I. I I am to some degree. They've had a publicity campaign where they have recast the supposed gift of tongues. So in early Mormonism, Joseph Smith lays out the spiritual gifts that God gives us. One of them is the gift of tongues. And the gift of tongues is classically very often understood to be when you feel the Holy Spirit, you can speak languages that you otherwise cannot. It's it's a demonstration of of essentially you doing something that a normal human cannot. It's a demonstration of of divine intervention. Now, if you talk to Mormons, they will talk about the gift of tongues being the ease with which you can use the ease with which you can learn new languages um, in the efforts to be a missionary. And I think that is a great example of the kind of institutional evolution that that religions undergo from something more based in charisma to something more institutionalized, based on, for instance, missionizing. Ah, that's that's extremely fascinating, and uh, I want to. Cool on that thread, but I also remember, like, and being a good interviewer, that you were enumerating the possible characteristics that are parallel or not, right? And we we covered, I, I think, a, a good range of them all already. Was there any others that you were thinking of that we didn't get to with, like, the guru shaman potential for parallel or disjunction? No, the, the main two that I wanted to cover were 
are they service providers and are they deviating from normal humanness to provide that? Is there anything else that is relevant? Um, well, I mean, so something that I think about a lot with shamanism is the use of, for lack of a better word, the arena of the performance to create an incredible, compelling environment, the use of music, the use of theater to you know, make people suggestible, to to create an incredibly vivid experience. Shamans are in front of you battling against witches. They are, you know, dancing for hours and you are yourself are falling into trance. You yourself are feeling it. it they, they really make it real. So the next thing I would ask is, do gurus make it real? I was going to switch it right when you wrote a similar question. So that, that's like a, a great introduction to that because that seems to me an area where there's a difference because traditionally look at what most of the gurus do even in the case where there is theatrics you know with a jordan peterson performance and uh matthew ramsky from conspirituality has talked about him going on the stage and kind of pacing around in a trance-like state just linking concepts and stuff but the performance is very much academic in style it's a lecturer in a hall maybe sitting down on a fancy chair and debating with other people, right? It has a very Western aesthetic to it, I think, rather than the stuff that you might see in the health and wellness sphere, which m more readily parallels trans rituals or, or shamanistic performances. But, but the question that I had related to that is one thing that we see in pretty much all the gurus we cover from whatever side of the spectrum they're from or wherever the arena is, they're extremely good linguistically. They're metaphorically excellent and they're able to talk seemingly endlessly about topics and get lost in metaphors and go down these rabbit holes and, and sound extremely authoritative. So they, they are charismatic. Most of them are, are very charismatic, but in a, in a talking linguistic way. So my, my kind of question to you was, is that something that shamans also have or is theirs more like a kinetic charisma that they don't have to necessarily be good at like talking and waxing lyrical for hours because they can uh, buttress it with performances or, you know, does it depend? Yeah. So again, without there being systematic data, I'm just going to talk about impressions. But my impression <laughs> is that across societies, rhetorical competence is pretty often a component of charisma. Not necessarily a necessary or important component of shamanic charisma, but something that people just find compelling in charismatic individuals. And so I think shamans benefit from being charismatic in any way, from being you know, socially compelling to being even like a good hunter, something that shows that, oh, there's something else going on with this guy. So I would say that being rhetorically fluid is not necessarily like a a very shamanic trait, but it's a charismatic trait and shamans benefit from being from being rhetorically competent. So if you have that facility, it would be good, but it's not like a foundational requirement. Whereas I would I would argue in the case of like the secular modern gurus that's the core component because that's what they have right they're in the lieu of ritual performances to heal people what they tend to be offering is podcasts <laughs> and and like long form yeah. discussions right for consumption so in those arenas obviously 
you you want that. But on the other hand, and th- this is completely like farther afield, but I I feel a category of people who possibly merge those two things is the kind of modern influencers and Twitch streamers and this kind of, you know, VTubers, because they they do have the same thing that they need to have this verbal fluency and ability to talk for hours on streams. But they also often get into like some of the streamers that I'm familiar with, they've started, you know, to do tours and, and put on shows and they're cultivating the ability to perform to live crowds. And it's a kind of different skill set, but there's a lot of cross pollination in ability. So yeah, I guess they are a potential avenue for, you know, gurus. They're just not the kind of gurus that we tend to focus on, but like Twitch streamers and, and VTubers are maybe that it's horrifying to think of them as the potential new shamans, but I, it, there might be some parallels worth exploring there as the, especially with the ability for VR technology or, or motion tracking to make people appear as, as fundamentally like improbable and impossible characters. So yeah. 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 Can I jump in really quick? Yeah. Um, so thinking about the parallels and the differences with shamans, uh, it seems that here's one hypothesis or one impression that the thing that shamans are building their credibility on is their ability to engage with unseen realities, to have powers that normal humans do not, often powers related to supernatural abilities. And that is what is really valuable for them to provide these services to help people with the uncertainty in their lives. Ruse that you were talking about. So again, they, they confront a similar problem. They want to, you know, assure people that they have solutions or, or information that that other people do not. But their authority seems to come less from, you know, having powers that allow them to engage with unseen realities. You know, having these fundamental powers, and more from having knowledge, perspectives. You know, it's it's kind of like a, it reminds me of like a priestly, a priestly authority. Yeah, where it's it's more. Familiarity with texts, familiarity with bodies of knowledge, um, and and that I think connects to the ways in which you're talking about them being different. It's not necessarily they have a different skeleton, or you know they they almost died and they came back to life or whatever. It's more like they had these early experiences that showed that their minds see problems in a different way, or that they you know think about knowledge in a different way, and and their ordeals are also demonstrations of patterns of thought. In a way, you know, I went through yeah. this idea, this ordeal, but I could, I could maintain the way that the, the special way that I see problems, and and it also highlighted for me other people who who think about things in these ways. Is that one way? That's just a hypothesis. I see two ways you could go with it, right? And I think the way that you're outlining is is probably the more compelling argument, and that applies to a broader range of people. And in that frame, I think again. The, the modern secular gurus as prophets who are reinterpreting traditions or texts, right, in ways that they weren't before because of special insights seems like a more appropriate comparison. But there are some exceptions, like there are gurus who they're ostensibly talking about science and, you know, maybe evolutionary perspectives and so on, uh, this kind of scientific framework or advanced statistics. But that's really a gloss on the way that they actually treat it, which is like a mystery tradition where there's the actual scientific literature, there's the normal statistical analysis, and everyone does it wrong. 
but they can approach it and see the kind of fundamental mysteries that are there. And so they're, they're treating the scientific literature, not in the way that a normal scientist would, but more as like an alchemist, right? The kind of going in and discovering the mysteries that other people have not seen. And because of that, they orientate themselves towards like Galileo and Einstein and revolutionary thinkers, as opposed to, you know, just like a, a scientist doing the work and coming up with these insights. They, they do reference that, but it's much more in the realm of like revolutionary thinkers who deserve Nobel prizes than like workaday scientists who worked out something that other people missed. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. That's interesting. I mean, now we're just starting to deviate. But uh, what this is highlighting in an interesting way is that there are so many ways of building credibility or authority when authority comes from knowledge. Because I often think about there, there being this dichotomy. And this is this is actually like rooted in Weber. Weber. <laughs> Um, Weber is like how I pronounce his name in my head. I say that that's that's what I often said. So I was like, shit, did I say it wrong earlier? So that's that's right, right, right. good. I, I actually forget his his typology of of authority, but the way that that I have thought about it often, inspired by kind of encountering his text early on, is you can have authority on the basis of charisma, and you can have authority often on the basis of knowledge of text. And this is how I how I think about shamans as compared to priests. And of course, each of them blends with the other. I don't want to sure. I don't want to say shamans don't get authority from knowledge and priests don't get authority from charisma or ecstatic ecstatic contact. But if we want to think about that dichotomy. But then it's also like actually, you know, as we're chatting, it's like, oh, there's so many different ways of of having credibility, having authority, yeah. Convincing people that that you can provide services with the domain of authority on the basis of knowledge or the authority on the basis of of information. Um where one is like the scientist, where it's familiarity with the scientific method and this very powerful way of, of producing insight and learning about the world. And then it's this like much more peculiar one that you're talking about, which is like, I don't even actually fully understand it because the natural question is, why should you be right and all of the scientists be wrong? <laughs> like that is... I, I think I have the answer to that. Oh yeah? Well, yeah. What is the answer? I think I'm channeling Matt <laughs> in, the, in, in this answer, but... The problem I think you're encountering, Manvir, is one that Matt and I encounter where you're not a raging narcissist. <laughs> so you, I know that sounds disparaging, but it's literally true that a lot of the behaviors of the gurus are kind of inscrutable. Like, why would they do that? But it does make sense through the prism of a self-regard, which is beyond, you know, normal human levels. And which means that when you try to conceptualize it, you're like, but, but nobody would... You know, actually, people don't think like that. But I think the level of self-regard and self-confidence that gurus have, and if you want to put frame it positively, it's what lets them become these like huge figures in the cultural space. And it's what lets them like confidently state their theories. But it, on the other hand, it's, it's what allows them to believe they've perceived something in fields of science, which they have never published in or, you know, like published a paper in that they now think they have synthesized the thing which everybody has overlooked. And lots of people recognize cranks through that. But it's not so clear that when somebody is actually successful and when they are seen as an intellectual, when they claim to be doing it, like you can't just dismiss them in the way that, you know, Bob in his basement is claiming that he corrected Einstein. 
because there's no sign that he actually has intelligence and expertise that deserves recognition. Whereas like the guru figures, they do. They, and they often have, you know, degrees and, and careers. Um, so, yeah. So the puzzle, the puzzle that comes to me then is if I am a potential follower, if I am looking for ways of dealing with my health or spiritual well-being, why should I believe that this person has insight that transcends science? Like what, how can they make that credible? Like that's the problem shamans are running into. Shamans are running into this thing where it's like, yeah, you, you want to, you want to heal your, you want, you want rain. I can talk to the rain god. And the natural question is like, how can you do that? You're just a regular person. And then they have to do performances or, you know, they have to have their skeleton replaced. They have to enter trance. All of this, according to one perspective, is a way of dealing with this natural skeptic, skepticism. So then, yeah, then the same question arises over here. How can you convince an audience that you transcend science, for lack of a better so phrase? So I, I can answer what the gurus do, and it's essentially that they disparage institutional knowledge as corrupted and like sinister forces behind it that are, that's what, so the true science is good. But you can't see the true science anymore because it's, you know, being taken over by Fauci and the forces behind it. But and even the ones that are like less conspiratorially minded than that, maybe the main thing is like all of the scientific journals now, Nature and whatnot, they're captured by wokeness. So you you can no longer trust them to not be promoting a specific ideology. Whereas the guru. They've demonstrated that they will stand up to, you know, prevailing winds and you can trust them um, for that reason. So invoking conspiracy and invoking that the other sources of no knowledge are corrupted, that tends to be a recurrent pattern that we observe um, and it works. And, and also telling your followers that if they agree and if they can perceive the corruption and go along, that they are kind of uniquely critically minded and special, you know, people as well, like that, that kind of flattering approach, it's really effective. And, and I kind of, I, you know, I think I get the appeal because there's been lots of times in my life as well, where I felt like, oh, I've got this insight that, you know, from reading these things or in, uh, studying the stuff that other people like, and it's, it gives you this sense that you have this insight that other people are not privy to. So if someone else can offer you that it's it's definitely really appealing yes 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 okay that makes sense that makes sense leveraging a maybe a conspiratorial tendency or a skepticism or perception of corruption or a resistance to wokeness that that is already there leveraging that to further delegitimize and then presenting yourself as legitimate does that ever happen with yeah. shamans in regards to either science or potentially rival religious traditions, seeing them as corrupted or like foreign religions kind of coming in and, and destroying the culture. Yeah. Uh, so I guess my first answer would be yes. Um, foreign religions come in and, you know, they, they are very competitive and, and have a huge threat for shamans and shamans and other local magical religious specialists want to try to delegitimize. That is hard though. There is a lot that's very compelling or attractive by foreign, by world religions. One of them being like stuff, 
you know, world religions come in and both their practitioners have incredible stuff. And um, <laughs> when I say both, I mean like foreign religions come in, they have incredible stuff that both like gives them some more authority or legitimacy. Oh, this is a worldview that's connected to incredible material plenty or like incredible technologies. But also they can be like, if you join our religion, we'll give you all these clothes. Um, yeah. And so, <laughs> so I, I often think, I think that sometimes local practitioner strategies has to instead be to be syncretic that, you know, we have to pull in some of these influences. It's also the fact that like people on an everyday basis are are often quite open to trying various things. In the community where I work, it's not uncommon. Someone has a kid who has like a crazy illness. They'll go to some shamans. They'll go to a Christian healer. They'll go to a Muslim healer. They'll go sure. to the clinic. They will They'll just try everything. Um, yeah. yeah. That's a, you know, in the, the flip reverse, this, this example has been batting around in my head like 10 times. So I need to, I need to expel it. Um, like in the reverse way, I feel like, you know, when you were talking about that distinction between charismatic and textual authority, and of course, there's always going to be like boundary cases, right? But I, the example which sprung to mind is the Jesuits, because you have the spiritual exercises from Loyola, which are, seem to be much more, you know, charismatic kind of entering trance and having a direct spiritual experience with the, you know, transcendent nature of Christ. But the other thing the Jesuits are famous for is being extremely erudite and scholastic and, you know, focusing very much on textual authority. So they kind of combine both aspects of authority in a specific branch of monastic Catholicism. So it's just a specific example, but like you, you're going to get blendings and you're going to get co-options going in both directions with, you know, probably shamans adopting things from doctrinal religions and, and as part of their performance. So yeah. 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 And just to quickly jump in, I, I also want to highlight that shamans definitely very often use both. And I, I think we can think about them as drawing on two texts. One is the indigenous knowledge that has been passed down for, you know, that has perceived to be passed down for, for a long time. So in Mentawe, if you want to become a Sikere, you have to get your eyes magically treated. You have to observe deprivation, but then you also need a teacher who teaches you the songs. They teach you the herbal knowledge. There's an authority given to, to you know, this, this indigenous body of knowledge, which I think can be considered a text. But then, yeah, like you're saying, they can also draw on this other this other source of authority. And in an interesting way, when a shaman is drawing on a doctrinal religion for authority, they're again doing both. They are drawing on both the charismatic source of that authority, the fact that some people might believe in a Christian God now, and, and so you can draw upon the idea that you have a connection to the Christian God in some way. Yeah. Um, but then they can also draw upon texts. They can recite prayers that are believed to be, you know, ritually potent. Yeah. And, and, you know, as you well know, when you go and look at traditions which are now portrayed as like extremely doctrinal and the early practices tend to be like heavily magical, right? The, the Buddhas are, are reciting sp spells to ward off misfortune and stuff like that. So there's definitely like an overlapping of those potential authorities. And I like the, the view of it as there's all these different wells that you can drawn but the important thing is to have a source of authority for why you can do something which other people haven't and why you are a figure that deserves status right yes that is the that is the main thing that they have to deal with why 
why should I go to you and not anyone else? It's just bringing to mind that Jordan Peterson might like this discussion because you know he's all about ascending competence hierarchies and he has a like a somewhat of an obsession with status and he sees Jesus as the ultimate manifestation of the embodiment of the competence hierarchy. So in his world frame, in some sense, like the figure of Christ is a shamanic emblem that should be emulated. I don't know if it it's exactly fits into the shamanic frame, but like it's not just a deliverer of doctrine. It's a a kind of evolutionary figure to be to be represented. So he might like this notion that, you know, the religious traditions are all offering these different ways of increasing your status <laughs> within a given society. I could ask you a, a million <laughs> things about these topics, but I, I want to ask you something a bit left field off shamans uh, from something that I saw you recently covered. But I don't want to, uh, if there's anything that you wanted to ask or cover before I shift gears a bit. No, no, feel free to shift. I'm curious where you'll go. Yeah. So the, well, there were two things. And one is um, I saw you, you make these very good threads on Twitter kind of summarizing your articles sometimes, but also just about your thoughts related to usually anthropology. And I, I really recommend anybody to go follow them because they're, they're a good example, I think, of evolutionary theorizing being applied, you know, with cultural sensitivity. But um, I did notice that you threw some shade at David Wengro and Graeber, um, the, oh, the, right. the dawn of everything in a recent thread. And, you know, maybe that's not the way that you want to frame it. But trust me, like we're, we're into the late stages of this conversation. So it's only people that like us that are still here. So the chance of a Wengro Graeber fan like being deeply offended are low. But um, I find with that book, and I can say up front, I haven't read it. I've read detailed reviews. I, I used the little Blinkist free trial and, and consumed, you know, the summary of the book. And I find it very, like, on one hand, the part I agree with is that kind of the legitimate critique about this evolutionary ladder of societies is obviously wrong. And there's been more diversity that's been recognized in, in human history. But that strikes me as like something that anthropologists have already long agreed on, all of them. <laughs> but the kind of notion that they want to present, uh, to me, it had a very clear, like, their political ideology leans a certain way. And so they find lots of evidence that this is, you know, not only feasible from the human past, but it it is feasible again in the future. You know, capitalism necessarily is not the final stage for where humans are. But I, I wondered... Your critique of Wengrun Graeber, or like where you agree and differ, maybe you have read the book. So I, I was curious just to explore your opinion on that. That's my cards up front. So where do you okay. fall? Yeah. So my thoughts about that book. On the one hand, I think that it is a very important book that is making an argument that in many ways I very much agree with. You know, like you said, I think many anthropologists recognize that, but I, I think a the idea that there is there are evolutionary stages that human societies move through has, as you said, long been dismissed. But I do think among anthropologists, among social scientists, and even among some anthropologists, 
the idea that there was much greater social diversity before agriculture, you know, during the first 5,000 years of the Holocene, I don't think is greatly appreciated. Um, and, and so I think the effort of summarizing a lot of that research is commendable. So, yeah. so I think they did, a, I think like arguing against some of our conceptions of pre-agricultural hunter-gatherers and, and at the diversity of early agricultural societies and early states is an awesome, commendable yeah. project. Yeah, definitely. I agree with that. Yeah. On the other hand, like you said, it, it does strike me that they have political aims, political messages that they want to push and that guides how they interpret evidence. And in some ways, I disagree with the kinds of conclusions they make. So, you know, they really want to make, there, there are two arguments that I think they're, they're making a lot. Um, one is that we are really underappreciating how socially flexible human societies can be. Yeah. And, you know, I think, I think in some ways that's like, like we just said, a, a good message to really appreciate that, that forager societies were probably much more diverse and much more flexible. I think this point is sometimes made to the extent that they are rejecting like patterns that have been demonstrated and, and appreciated and patterns that I actually think are, are important for understanding what pre-Holocene Pleistocene societies were like, pre-agricultural societies are like. So an example is that they appear to be very anti-behavioral ecology and behavioral yeah. ecology is this investigation of how both evolutionary and ecological forces interact to shape behavior. And behavioral ecology has, has demonstrated in very interesting ways that human societies vary in all kinds of ways, one of which is that um, we find more hierarchical, more sedentary, larger groups in areas with dense, rich resources. So even if you look at hunter-gatherers, they create larger, more hierarchical, more sedentary societies in place that, places that have dense, rich, reliable resources. Um, and I think that this is actually important because it helps us appreciate the kinds of social diversity we saw in the Pleistocene. Oh, hunter-gatherers lived in, in places that today have fish, etc. And, and so we can expect that there was much more hierarchy, much more sedentism, much larger groups. But they, they want to reject like some of these patterns, I think because they want to to push the story that human societies are, are flexible in a way beyond ecological constraints. And in a way, I think they, they end up politicizing something like behavioral ecology. They, they, make, they turn like, the study of the ecological and evolutionary determinants of behavior into a reactionary project that like, <laughs> denies human fundamental flexibility, which I don't really appreciate. But at the same time, so that is, I think, one like unfortunate mm. thing that's happening in the book. The other is that they really insist on this story that, yes, human societies were much more flexible in, in the deep past, but they also exhibited these three fundamental freedoms. The freedom to oh, move, yeah. the freedom to disobey, and the freedom to create new social orders. And I don't think we can make those kinds of inferences. There is, to me, kind of an irony of that book where they are arguing against one idyllic picture or one simplistic picture of the past. You know, we lived in small, mobile, nomadic, egalitarian bands, but then they 
kind of replace it with another that's one of uber freedom that history was was incredibly free and free in these ways that um we don't appreciate and now we have lost those freedoms it's in a way reproducing a fall from eden story yeah um, or a, a fall from grace story um but again i i do want to highlight that that the project of bringing together this this ethnographic and archaeological evidence to demonstrate human social flexibility and diversity i think is a great one um i just disagree with with those those two conclusions <laughs> those specific conclusions but yeah i would emphasize the same point that like like i said i have not read the book yet but from all of the accounts that i read including the critical ones that were very clear that it's a it's a remarkable book and like an achievement to bring all the material together so in some respects i i feel like they wouldn't like the comparison but you know guns germs and steel and and these kind of books are in some sense valuable because they present these big feces which then stimulate people to argue with or to to explore data sets and and there's some of the rejoinders to jared diamond are are excellent right like and you learn a lot by seeing how people refute the arguments so yeah so that that was great and i i really appreciate the summary there's more things i could ask but i want to get to the one last one before i i tie up and let you escape and it was just i also noticed man dear, that you had an article recently published that was arguing against there being well documented benefits for intermittent fasting at least in the way that it's popularly conceived i saw that you got some pushback or significant pushback might be uh like more accurate um and then you you made a thread summarizing that okay well maybe this is what we can say about where there's like strong evidence of benefits or not but like lots of our gurus are fans of like very specific diets right all meat diets lex friedman was waxing lyrical on the recent episode about intermittent fasting and many of the tech ceos do it as well so i was just kind of curious for a a condensed summary of what you concluded from investigating that topic and and was the pushback particularly fierce or is that my misperception i was just wondering do people seem to get very sensitive about you know when you talk about the fad diets um so so yeah yeah okay a couple things one so my first article i had this article for wired in their ideas column which argued that and it didn't argue that intermittent fasting did not have effects it argued that a lot of people now use fasting regimes to create perceptions of themselves as special it actually was arguing that like this is a kind of a shamanic technique and you know shamans this is one of the most common practices that shamans engage in deprivation and my own fieldwork in mentawe i've had you know some experimental studies that suggest that people infer you know special power they infer mental difference from from deprivation and so i was arguing that a lot of tech ceos use that that they use many practices including deprivation schemes all, all kinds of fad diets to promote perceptions of otherness it is true that in an article i had a line that said that it did not look like fasting has short-term cognitive benefits and i was citing two reviews the citations are not apparent in in the wired piece but you know when you submit any of these articles you need to have all your fact checking so you have to yeah. cite all your claims for the fact checkers and so i had two 
citations to recent reviews. You know, if you go to Google and you type in like fasting cognitive benefits and you look at the most cited reviews, those are the two that I found. And then I did get, I got quite a bit of pushback. Do you know Dave Asprey? Dave Asprey is- Oh yes, I do. I just heard him being discussed on the Conspirituality podcast as it happens. Yeah. So Dave Asprey pulled me on his podcast. He is a huge advocate of intermittent fasting and of biohacking. And he was ready to really fight. Um, We came to a common understanding. But yeah, so people were sending me references. And so in the end, you know, I, I had I had this sentence that said that there does not seem to be cognitive benefits of short-term fasting. I believe I put in the phrase short-term because I could not find studies on longer-term effects. Hmm. But yeah, I put together a thread. I would need to look again at the thread, but I believe these were the these were the conclusions. One, it does seem to be the case that if you put subjects on short-term fasting, you know, you fast for a day, so like dopamine fasting, that leads to cognitive deficits. And, you know, to make this easier for people reading the thread, I just colored findings in these tables from the reviews, r- red or green, yeah, according to whether it's deficits or, or benefits. And you look at the short-term fasting review and it's like almost all red. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> then there is, what is the effect of intermittent fasting on, on like neurological disorders? And there does seem to be, the evidence is pretty striking, both from animal models or non-human animal models and from humans, showing that I think both among individuals who have neurological disorders and potentially over the long run uh, among individuals who do not have neurological disorders, it increases, there are cognitive benefits for individuals with cognitive or neurological disorders. And over the long run, if I think, I think this should be looked at in the review reduces the likelihood of neurological disorders. You should note that with animal models, these, I think, are fasting regimes that are unrealistic for a human. You know, it's like you start like what I think would be equivalent to like the age of 15 for a human and you go into like 85 for a human. You know, they start like in adolescence, like rat adolescence or earlier and they they stretch through the entire life. Then finally, there is the long-term effects, the long-term cognitive effects of intermittent fasting. So I was sent a review, I think it was published earlier this year, in April, and it had five or six human studies. So it's a very, very big, mm. young literature. All of them, I think, have been published since 2018. I think four actually suggested positive effects over long-run intermittent fasting, and two were inconclusive. So, uh, you know, I did say that uh, as, a, as a part of this Thread, I was like, okay, it does seem like there's potentially, I mean, it's it's an incredibly young field. It's like three years old. There are six studies, but there are potential cognitive benefits. Then I looked at sleep. There are a bunch of reviews on sleep. It doesn't look like there are effects on sleep. So that is what the thread showed. Mm, for me, that is a perfect summary. And I, I didn't know that you talked directly to Dave Asprey. So that's, that's interesting. I'm, I have to hunt it down. But the one thing I will say, Manvir, is like, from that and from the various things that you've said in this interview, you would not be a good guru because you're too clear <laughs> about the limitations of evidence and about you know the the relative uh, uncertainties that we have, and that doesn't that does not go well. Um, but it does go well for a career as like a scientist and a researcher. So this right. <laughs> this is probably you've chosen the right profession. But yeah, so. I could continue talking to you, I think, endlessly, but um, your life and, and my parenting duties call 
So I I just want to thank you for coming on and also apologize that the the more laid back member of the the hosting duo is not here. He's here in spirit. I am channeling his energy, but um, yeah, he was otherwise disposed today, so couldn't be here. But he he definitely will have missed out and be sad not to have talked to you. But yeah, so thanks very much for discussing the parallels and indulging my endless fascination with gurus. And yeah, I I think there are a lot of interesting overlaps. And oh yeah, that thing that I'm supposed to ask everybody is so if people want to follow you or you know see your work where do they go google scholar i would recommend but uh, aside from that <laughs> aside from google scholar so my website manvir.org m-a-n-v-i-r.org and then my twitter um which is uh my name without the vowels m-n-v-r-s-n-g-h it's not a great twitter handle i'm trying to <laughs> yeah. buy at manvir from this woman refuses to sell it to me um uh, but we'll see mine is c underscore kavna so you know i, I can't say that's a particularly catchy but one i think that's better I th- because i mean that's my name <laughs> yeah, <so. laughs> yeah. but, because i think the absence of vowels i think can be confusing it's like oh yeah, wait a little bit, yeah, it, <laughs> yeah. It, I, I, you know, text speech <laughs> allowed us to understand that, but that that skill is becoming an ancient technique that the youngsters no longer have with their emojis and whatnot. But um, so Manvir, thanks so much again for coming on. I'll I'll put a ton of links in the show notes so people can check out your threads and your your papers as well. And uh, yeah. I hope to see you in the future when I return to conferencing and I'll probably try to convince you to write a paper and, and do most of the work. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> yeah, let's see if I can do that. But uh, cheers for coming on. It, it's a pleasure. Yeah, thank you for having me. This was a lot of fun. And I'm back. Bye-bye, Manvir. Hello, Matthew. <laughs> <laughs> I yeah. had a good time with... Manvir, but you know, I'm back to the the homestead, the hearth, the Irish Jews on the table. This is this is mm. my comfy chair. It was it was just a dalliance. It, yes. it didn't mean anything, Matt. It was it was just pleasure. I've been waiting for you here in the cottage, Chris, peeking out the window, wondering when you would dock at my door. But thank goodness you're back. Uh, and we yeah. can do the outro together. Yes. And well, yes. So so Matt, that was the interview. It was we covered a lot of ground. I'm just, you know, I always like to ask you this, but you know, which part in specific was was your favorite part? Like, was there oh. an insight in particular that you you find useful, or you know, it was mainly the middle bit. It was the middle bit that I that I really, yeah, I felt ah. I got the most out of. Yeah, I mean, don't get me wrong. The beginning and the end were good too, but the, no, middle, the end was good. The yeah. end was good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, that's all right. That's all right. So, with your insightful review of uh, my discussion with Manvir, it's time Matt, for us to turn to other insightful reviews that we may or may not have received from our listeners. Uh, in some cases, our critics. Yeah, we'll be the judge of that, whether or not they're insightful. Let's let's see what we've got. Yes. So I've got a five star to start us off, and it's by 
Hoss Boss Man, good name. Um, and the title is Addicting Funny Informative Crap. <laughs> hmm. So, yeah, that seems, it's not, seems fairly accurate, but this podcast is one of my current favorites. The hosts have cool accents from Europe, which I know is only <laughs> half true in a sense because the one guy is Australian. However, although it is a separate landmass, Australia is technically part of Europe. Subjects <laughs> of the crime, many say. <laughs> I like it when the hosts talk about Brett Weinstein, which is good because they do that a lot. <laughs> he is weird and fascinating to me. Overall, that's my review. It's just my opinion, so don't blame me in my mentions. Rest in power, James Brown. Nice one. Nice one. Yeah, we do talk about Brett a lot. He is fascinating. I think we'll keep talking about him. We can't stop him and his brother and Heather, of course. Don't leave Heather out. We, we dislike her as well. We can never really get away from Brett, although I will say listening to his recent content, uh, it's just it's just depressing. It's just depressing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Thanks, Bad Stats, by the way. I keep trying to forget Brett, but it keeps coming up yeah. in my feed. Well, I can't. I can't help but watch. I have to click on the video and then I see things that burn my soul. He's, he's been interviewed by Robert Wright, former guest on the podcast. So I'm kind of curious to see that discussion because his review of it sounded like he was a little bit annoyed at it. But he, he also seemed to believe he got the better of Bob. So I'm well, I'm Brett would always see. think that. So yeah. I know. <laughs> there's no, there's a, we don't have a negative review, Matt. We've only got five stars. We have to encourage people to leave us reviews uh you know flattering insulting whatever you want leave us yep. leave us some more yeah so we, we five have... stars ones we'll get read out first you can say the meanest things you want but say it underneath those five stars and we will shout you out we will cover it we got this very long review from it folder i can't read it all <laughs> it's a it's a five star review matt so like you said it's good but uh, let's see if you pick up on the theme of it okay the title is love it but when these voices first appeared i enjoyed their apparent commitment to objective truth in a way that was being destroyed elsewhere by the rise of populism and the internet then watched in horror as to varying degrees they fell to all the same pitfalls they claimed to be calling out oh. decoding the gurus is the perfect antidote love it so wait I'm, I'm a little bit confused was he talking about us was that or anyway however I do find on some discussions, the elephant in the room is you can never really know your own biases. And that includes Chris and Matt. It's all very well relentlessly trying to pin down Sam Harris and tell him you don't realize this because of your biases. But what if the reason Chris and Matt think he has biases is because of their biases? Yes. Now my biases are no doubt leading me to the defense <laughs> of Sam Harris. It's a whole of mirrors, Chris. It's a crazy thing. There's no way out of here. Yeah, anyway. but con it continues. The charge in Sam's case in particular seemed to be less disagreeing about what he says is true about the world and more who he chooses to speak to and what he spends his time criticizing, highlighting. It goes on. And then, for me, it's indicative of his ability to orientate all discussions back towards what is objectively true about the world rather than get lost in playing to the tribe or any of the other psychological pitfalls some of the gurus fall victim to and so on so there's a there's a kind of long <laughs> discussion about sam 
<laughs> whether he has tribal biases or not. And it's actually a quite interesting back and forth in this review. It's a journey mm. yeah. um, uh, assessing whether it's my biases that are the issue or Sam's biases. And uh, the la- oh. it ends with this part. I get that Sam's conviction is he couldn't possibly be biased about anything, and that's a little bit too strong. He loses me sometimes in that regard because it seems to undercut his arguments about others. I totally get why, because admitting that leads to a pretty nihilistic place where you must concede nobody can really be sure they're right about anything. However, I get the same feeling listening to Chris's conviction that Sam is objectively biased, as though it was actually Chris who was the true arbiter of these matters, the one who sees them clearly, and is actually what Sam claims to be. Is all of this just because of my biases? Probably. <laughs> Mostly, I really like Sam, and I think he's pretty rational and worth listening to, but I also love absolutely everything about the coding the gurus. So I've tried to reconcile the marking tone with which you guys speak about him a lot. Yep. That's, I, I like this review. This is good. This is from the, the heart. And... Yeah, he's speaking to a real thing, Chris. There's no, there's no perfectly objective computer. There are no heroes. There are no idea. heroes. Least of all, Chris. Least of all, Chris. <laughs> yeah, least. <laughs> oh God! Oh God! <laughs> the, the things we could say about Chris. But look, this is. I think you know. If you want to pit me and Sam in a little virtual game against each other, you know, if one of us has the power. To strongly acknowledge that they are biased oh, and my. have tribal biases, yeah. the other one doesn't. I, you know, I, I'm just saying one of them <laughs> is claiming to have a greater level of detachment than the others. Because my point is, everybody is in the mud. We're all mm. subject to these biases. Now we're not all equally subject to them. This is an important point. But there is nobody on this earth who doesn't have in-group biases, except. Mm. Maybe, I don't know, the Buddha or mm. somebody, you know, even him. He's just a man. And so Now, Chris, um, correct me mm. if I'm wrong, but I think you would agree that, you know, it's a little bit of a red flag when somebody, you know, says that they have no biases whatsoever. Is that right? It's a huge red flag. Yes. <laughs> this And this this is, you know, this is a bit of a callback to Robin D'Angelo because, you know, she would say the same oh, thing. But shit. instead of biases, oh, shit. Yeah, she'd, say, <laughs> she'd say racism, right? Oh, oh no, you're trying to be in there. Yeah. You're trying to be in This is our catch training too. Well, mm. yes, this is true, but I don't... Oh, wait. No, it's the same because I was going to say there's no, there's no moral feeling of this. It's just a part of being human to have. Mm. But, you know, look, there's a difference because, you know, Matt, it's... It's in human nature to have a blind spot, right? You know, Sam Harris often uses that analogy, but it's true, right? Like you cannot undo it, but it, but it is there in your vision and you can do various things to look for it and whatnot. But that doesn't mean that by saying everybody has a blind spot, that you're doing the same thing that like Robin D'Angelo is doing, right? There can actually be things that you cannot ignore. And I think in group, biases towards people that you feel a closer affiliation to ideologically or interpersonally. It's just an aspect of being a social primate. And you can you can dampen it. You can try and reduce how far you exercise it and that kind of thing. And, and I think Sam does do that to a lesser extent than lots of the people that we cover in the guru sphere. But I think 
anybody that thinks they've completely transcended that mm. is on very shaky grind. You know, I think at a philosophical level, the reviewer there is, is is quite correct that it's, you know, we're all looking through a glass darkly and, you know, we're yeah, doing the best, you're, you're doing right, the best you're we can. Right, you're right to, to raise the D'Angelo parallel. That's, yeah. I'm hoisted by my own petard. I'm <laughs> hanging from the flag, it's swinging around. It's not you though, Chris, it's all of us. There's no way out of this hall of mirrors. So, um. Agreed. Yeah, no. just, I, I agree with the, that. We do the best we can. That's all we, we do. Do the best we can. And you can you can't you can't do better. The work is never done. <laughs> <laughs> do better, people. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's a it's an ongoing process of reflection that you need to commit to for your entire life. <laughs> oh my god. Life. Oh my god. It's <laughs> oh, good. <shit. laughs> this, oh, is, this is gonna dramatically affect our Robin D'Angelo Garometer episode. We're gonna have to, yeah. to, to oh, sing a lot. Well, oh my god. So thank you for the self-reflective review IT folder um, and with the mocking tone that we use in reference to Sam on occasion. It, it is meant in a, a, a charitable way. You know, I had a rather challenging conversation with, with Sam. I'm sure he felt the same way. We have our clear differences, but, but I, I do respect a lot of what he puts out content-wise. And, you know, I find uh, we, people forget we had an hour conversation before we got into the political disagreements and tribalism about his meditation app. And largely there, we we saw, you know, eye, eye to eye, eye on, on many respects. So, yeah. yeah. I look, an IT folder himself, if he or she can, can like Sam a lot, but also like us, despite us being mean to Sam, that's a good sign in itself, right? So, you know, just being able to hold different different things you're in your head. You're doing that. Maybe you're the one IT folder. You're the hero we need. <laughs> <laughs> you're the one. That, 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 you can restore balance to the force. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that's our that's our reviews. And, and last, Matt, the last thing, patrons. We have patrons. If you were a patron, you could have heard this conversation with Manveer weeks ago. You can hear our Decoding Academia series where we talk about research. And you can get life updates from me apologizing for us being late with various things. So, you know, there's tons of things for people to look to. And we have to shout out those people that mm. are kind enough to support us and our endeavors. Yes. So you shout out your people, Chris. I've got a couple of extra people. And I'll shout them oh. out after after you do your shout outs. Okay. So today for conspiracy hypothesizers, we have Marius Whoops, Hola Gatito, George Weiner, Paul Reedy, Catherine, Dylan Osborne, the real deal and Professor Feinstein again. Jim Jim G. Ryan Chandler, Sue Simmons. Some of those names may sound familiar to you. And this is because I've switched formats. I haven't completely reconciled them, but there we go. So you're, <laughs> That's you're okay. getting your shout out. Double shout outs are okay. Let's shout out everybody twice. Thank you, everybody. Triple shout outs. Yeah. I feel like there was a conference that none of us were invited to that came to some very strong conclusions. And they've all circulated this list of correct answers. Now, I wasn't at this conference. This kind of shit makes me think, man. It's almost like someone is being paid 
Like when when you hear these George Soros stories, mm -hmm. like he's trying to destroy the country from within. We are not going to advance conspiracy theories. We will advance conspiracy hypotheses. So those were our conspiracy hypothesizers for this week. Our revolutionary thinkers, we have Rebecca L. Shanawani, Des Ibuya, Adam G., Ayman Singh, and Jack. Oh, and David Ferguson as well. Good Wonderful. old David Ferguson. Wonderful. Love these guys. They're in the middle of the pack, not falling behind, not showing off. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you both. Oh, but all. All. <laughs> I'm usually running, I don't know, 70 or 90 distinct paradigms simultaneously all the time. And the idea is not to try to collapse them down to a single master paradigm. I'm someone who's a true polymath. I'm all over the place. But my main claim to fame, if you'd like, in academia is that I founded the field of evolutionary consumption. Now, that's just a guess, and, and, and it could easily be wrong. But it, it also could not be wrong. The fact that it's even plausible is stunning. Yeah, we said it before, but these um, clips are thematic, and we appreciate that about them. Very good. Yeah, I, I, I really like that interchange between Jordan and, and Brett. It just sums up what absolute bobbleheads <laughs> <laughs> they, they are. So there's that. But finally, Matt, finally we need to thank our Galaxy Brain gurus. The greatest of all the Patreon first, supporters. First amongst equals, yes. Yes. Okay. So we have Jay Jones. Okay. I, I'm going to shout them out again. I know we've shouted them out, but an influential hog dealer, Chris Spanos. Again, you're, uh. you're welcome. You're welcome. That's probably like your fifth shout out, but <laughs> there you go. And there are other people have been waiting a long time. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. But we do appreciate you. We do. Just forget that ton of boys. Yep. There's no favoritism. It's just this organization. This, this, it's just this organization. That's right. I've switched things over. This is to make us more organized. Um, David Ainsworth, Travis, and Kirsten Greed, who again, <laughs> Kirsten, I'm sure that's the second time. Uh, but, but Mark K, maybe this is your first time. So thank you to Mark K. And Death Stablor. Wait, we've definitely, definitely we're talking done. about Detective Stablor. So mm -hmm. there we go. Again, you know, look, Moses Mohammed, we haven't thanked him. Moses Mohammed. I think I remember you. that. Yep. And Trey DeVille. Oh, and Alex Bandar. Alex Bandar. That's a pretty yeah. good name. Steve right. Donnelly. We thanked him, Matt. But there he's gone. He's a Galaxy Brain Glory. <laughs> I can't stop myself. Ethan's uh, Jostad, Ethan Jostad, and Tim Morris as well. All Galaxy Brain Gurus we need to thank. All right. Thank you all, but especially the ones that we haven't previously thanked. Yes. yes. We thank the people that we have thanked 50% left. Yep. We tried to warn people. Yeah. Like what was coming, how it was going to come in, the fact that it was everywhere and in everything. Considering me tribal just doesn't make any sense. I have no tribe. I'm in exile. Think again, sunshine. <laughs> yeah. You know, that made me remember the Michael O'Fallon 2030 him talking to 2020 him and, you know, what will 2050 him think about 2018 him, that, that <laughs> whole conversation. People should go back to that episode. 
She did be curious, but that was yeah. Pretty funny. That's that's champagne DTG that we need to get back to that kind of thing. So good. Yeah. I mean Robin D'Angelo's it's fine, it's fine. But that's that's the classics. That's, that's the gold. That's the classics. That's the good shit. <laughs> <laughs> shit. It's the hard, <laughs> hard stuff. So yeah, right. That well. Now we're finishing our tech season. No. No, no, Wait, Chris, what? Chris, I've got, oh, I've got a couple more people I need to shout out. I've got a couple. Oh, yeah. So let it, <laughs> let it never be said that the squeaky wheel does not get the grease because yep. if you complain to me on Twitter, uh, I will shout you out. That is my response. So I like that. that like, this is actually should be our complete mechanism. If it's been ages since you haven't got your shout out and you're annoyed that I'm shouting out people I've already shouted out. <laughs> Uh, again, multiple times before I've got to you. I cost Matt on Twitter, and yep. you will get your shout out. So, you might, uh, you might. Yeah. If I'm if I'm sober and I'm paying attention and all the stars align, I may make a note and shout you out. So uh, we have a couple of people. First one is um, Current Affairs Spokane, and we're using the Twitter handles here because we we haven't cross tabulated Twitter databases with the Patreon databases. Unlike Sorry. us to be. Sorry, this organized, but oh. there we go. Yeah, we don't we don't have the databases, we don't have the tech. But um, current affairs Spokane, I think. So actually, I just realized current affairs Spokane said that his name did get mentioned on their weekly shoutouts, but it didn't feel as good as he'd hoped. So Chris, oh yeah, could you make him feel better? Make him like shout him out in a way such that it it makes him feel as good as he would hope. I. You can't, can you? Appreciate your support <laughs> so much. So it means much. it means so much. It, mm. You know, other people's support. You know, you know. I don't think about it that much. It just it's water off a duck's back. But your support, mm. your support means uh, the world to me. Chris, so uh, yeah, yeah. Current current affairs, Spokane. He's tearing up a little bit as he I says. I am this. Yeah. thinking about <laughs> all those current affairs, Spokane, who haven't had encouragement Matt you know uh, it does make me very sad <laughs> <laughs> oh, so. oh that was okay so that's just, okay good that was from the heart thank you mm -hmm. um dedicated mathematical mime as well also mentioned that um she hadn't got a, a shadow and it's been 11 months and um she's just been telling herself that it would take too much time to praise her and um no 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 it's it I don't care how long it's going to take uh, we will make the time, and especially because I like her username, I like dedicated username. mathematical mind. Yeah, and she's got a cool, like black and white sort of historical picture. I think it could be a f lady female scientist. A lady? Um, oh, imagine that <laughs> on no, Twitter. <laughs> yeah. I think it's a picture of a historical famous scientist, but I don't recognize, unfortunately. Um, general layabout, Sexist. aspiring mathematician, um, very sadly suffer, um, you know, dealing with some uh, medical issues right now, was in hospital, having a procedure done, and damn it, if that's not a good reason to get a special purpose shout out and for Chris to shed a few tears uh, for you, then I don't know what is. So get well soon. I hope you're recovering well, dedicated mathematical mime. And just keep listening. And for God's sake, don't cancel your Patreon subscription no matter what you do. I don't care. Yeah, just leave it on. You know, if things go bad, at least you're, <laughs> you're sort of If you can't afford medication or whatever, you know, just cut some. <laughs> no. Yeah. Oh, my. Well, I wasn't expecting that tone. But, uh, well, yes, I'm very sorry to hear about 
the health issues. I'm very happy to hear why it's going to be a transfer point. So, no, but but we, yeah, your our thoughts go out, and you know, just keep thinking in all those paradigms. Like if you if you think in all the different ones, no illness can actually get to you because you're just shifting paradigms constantly. Mm. So take Jordan Hall's advice and just keep shifting paradigms. That'll serve you well. Um, but I'm sure you'll be fine. That's right. Very good. Was that, uh, is there more? Have you had more cost stations or is that Oh, uh, I think I have, but I've, I forgot about those ones. Yeah, we'll get is, to them next time. These we'll are the ones I, ma- I made a note about. Yep. That's all right. We're encouraging bad behavior. <laughs> but that's all right. We, we, you know, we don't think these things through enough. That's our brand. That is our brand and we'll die by it. So, all right, Matt, this was an interesting episode. Thank you to Manbeer. Thank you to you. Thank you to the patrons. Thank you to the other listeners. Thank you to Japan for hosting me, my university for employing me. Thank you all, one and all. Thank you, gurus, for doing what you do. You make it possible for the show. So Thank you, especially uh, the patrons who haven't been shouted out yet. We'll get to you, but thank them in particular for their patience. We, we appreciate you all. We do. I thank them most of all. Most of all. Yep. Most of all. all right. Chris, any final words for me? Uh, no, I just want you to pay attention to the distributed idea suppression complex and mm-hmm. be aware of the gated institutional narratives, if you uh-huh. will. Okay. All right, good. I'll pencil that in for tomorrow. So um, we'll get that done. That's all right. Uh, if you don't have time, gravel at the feet of your muscle master. Okay. Oh, we're deep. <laughs> Adios, everyone. See ya. Bye-bye.